Welcome to Stranded Panda TV, everybody. We have a special treat for you today. It's the 100th episode of Superhero Ethics. Uh, the wonderful Matthew Westfox has uh, brought uh, five of his common contributors over on Superhero Ethics to uh, join in the conversation and have a conversation about uh, ethics across all geeky media. So we're going to bring in uh, Mr. Matthew Westfox here to tell us all about it. Welcome, Matthew Westfox. Thank you, Mr. Carroll. Thank you to the Stranded Panda Podcast Network. That's done so much to uh, really help us grow. And I'm super excited we got to 100 episodes. I'm super excited about all the guests we have today. We have a great lineup of questions, uh, many of which came from you, the listeners, uh, uh, and people on our Facebook pages and stuff like that. We'll be looking forward to all of that. Um, if you're listening live on the chat, please give us your comments and thoughts as you go. Throw out questions for us. Throw out comments. We'll try to address them as much as we can. And all that more will be coming right after this commercial break. We have no control over. Come to Home Depot or whatever. <laughs> And now back to our regular scheduled program. All right, so um, I'm Matthew, I'm your host, and I'm really excited today because what has made this podcast so great, uh, I think over the last 99 episodes, um, that sounds incredibly arrogant, but I hope you know what I mean, is that I've had the chance to um, share these conversations with so many great people. And today, today what we're doing is we're taking five people who have been frequent guests in uh, two cases, regular co-hosts, and bringing them all together for kind of just a panel discussion. Um, also kind of fitting because this podcast in part was born out of my time at WISCON, uh, a fantastic conference that I hope we'll be able to return to in person in a, a year or two when it's safe to do so, um, but not before then. Um, but so I'm going to do this kind of like a panel discussion where we're going to throw out questions and there's going to be discussion and some back and forth. Um, please feel free, our guests, to kind of jump in as you need to. Um, and I'll, if we get too off course, I'll kind of rein us in, but um, I think we're all good at kind of jumping in and, and having conversations. So... With that, let me just start uh, as an intro. Uh, I'd like each of you to um, introduce yourself, say what you've done with Superhero Ethics, um, what you do in terms of other parts of your life, in terms of superhero genre-type media, and then just say, why why is this whole super eth superhero ethics thing something that's interesting to you? What 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 in your mind is, is the connection between ethics, morals, justice conversations, and the genre media that we all love? Um, and I'll just kind of go around in a circle uh, with the pictures I have. So, Becky, let's start with you. Sure. Um, my name is Becky Allen. I am an author of a couple of young adult fantasy novels. The first one is Bound by Blood and Sand. Uh, I am sure I will plug that again at the end. Um, and I am also a person who watches and enjoys geeky media of all sorts. Uh, and I always have been, but a particularly fantasy and sci-fi reader. Um, and I have been on, I think, five or six episodes, mostly talking about Star Wars. Uh, I love that I have somehow become the recurring Star Wars guest <laughs> and a podcast that loves Star Wars. Um, and it was something that growing up was very important to me and continues to be, uh, and I have a lot of feelings about, and so I am very glad that I have been able to share those with all of the superhero ethics listeners. Um, and I, I find this kind of thing interesting because I think media analysis and knowing what we are saying when we create media and what we are absorbing when we are watching media is really important and that it's important to be thoughtful and critical of all of those things. Definitely. All right, uh, Paul, you want to go next? Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Paul Hoppy. I write stuff and uh, play poker and... I don't know, do a bunch of different things. Used to play a lot of music. Um, I enjoy pretty much all sorts of uh, fiction. 
Um, and I honestly, th this podcast, I, I started off doing it mostly just um, to sort of feel like I was doing something constructive while I was having conversations with Matthew that I otherwise <laughs> would have been having anyway. So it was kind of just like a way to spend time together while doing something that felt um, constructive, also sort of engaged my, uh, my narcissism of liking to hear myself talk and spread, uh, spread my views. But at the same time, uh, you know, more seriously, um, I think just bringing up questions is sort of the most important thing to me. Um, and then hearing different perspectives, like hearing all of you as, as guests and, um, and then listeners also feedback. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of questions that are sort of raised in a lot of media, but aren't necessarily delved into that deeply. And so I think having conversation around a lot of those topics uh, can be very productive. Awesome. Thank and you. And entertaining. Yeah, Paul was the original co-host. Um, and he was, um, by which I mean, I asked him to be a guest on two or three of them. <laughs> and then we just sort of originally decided that uh, he was a co-host. A situation that Jacob a won't have there. no experience. <laughs> <laughs> kind of ambushed me. It's like, I'm um, going to record this thing this one day. And, uh, yeah, do you, yeah, sure. It's like, oh, by the way, it's a podcast. You're the co-host. Okay, cool. <laughs> Jessica, go ahead. Hi, I'm Jessica Plummer. Um, I am a contributing editor at bookriot.com, uh, writing about all sorts of bookish things, but primarily the comics beat. Um, I also have a separate podcast, uh, Flights and Tights, a Superman movie podcast, where my co-host, Rebecca Goldberg, and I talk about how every Superman movie is terrible, and we're really sad about it, because we love him. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I have a lot of opinions about superheroes, um, and I think that talking about them um, through an ethical perspective is important, because they're, I mean, and superhero comics are very explicit about this they are our modern mythology um they that's how they're designed and mythology has always been there to teach us how we should live our lives and i'm not saying like go pick up the next the latest issue of venom and it's gonna tell you what to do <laughs> don't do anything in that comic i haven't read it but don't do it um <laughs> But I still think that it's worth, you know, if we're if we're talking about these characters like they're heroes, what does it mean to be heroic? Yeah, I, I love the mythology point. I had a professor in grad school who liked to say that um, mythology wasn't fact, but could be a source of truth. Um, and I kind of like that for the, for this kind of thing as well. Uh, Jacob, go ahead. Hi, my name is Jacob Leachich. I'm your plucky comic relief character uh, for this <laughs> So I was the uh, second, I guess, person Matthew roped in by saying, hey, come on and talk once about this thing that you like. And now you have a recurring gig until the end of time. Um, I got out of it through wizardry. Um, I got into it because uh, I enjoy and I've always enjoyed um, sort of processing and, and digesting and dissecting my media because that's a thing that people with an abundance of free time like to do. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes I find myself with an abundance of free time. Um, not so much anymore, hence my, uh, my departure. But even, even without it, uh, I find that whenever we're consuming uh, media, these days our, our stories, the things that, that we're telling, the things that we're conveying, um, in superhero stories, this is, I feel, even more true because of the narrative. Uh, I feel like we are really trying to project what our values are as a culture through these narratives 
And so it's important to analyze and be critical of when the the values espoused or, or being um, being advanced by our heroes maybe don't actually necessarily line up with what our real like day-to-day values should be, but are instead this sort of, you know, hyper-real, uh, you know, idealized version that doesn't actually work in, in proper reality. And it's important to, to talk about that and also to talk about the fact that robots are people. Uh, I also enjoy <laughs> that one. Definitely. Yeah, thank you, Jacob, for that. And I, I especially like your comment about... Mm-hmm. um. The, the, the recognizing the, the, the unreality of it. I think, you know, I, I, I don't know if everyone's like this, but I certainly grew up thinking, oh, Superman, Batman, you know, what they do is, is what's right. And so being able to now sort of be like, I can love these stories and also be very critical of them. Uh, something that I, I have really enjoyed and I know that talking with you all has really helped me do more of. Uh, Matt Carroll, our uh, host here at Strain of Panda. Give your own introduction. Hey, hey. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Congratulations. 100 episodes is a big deal. Um... My name is Matthew Carroll. I am from the Stranded Panda Network, and uh, I make podcasts and music, and uh, all geeky, basically. So that's about it. Check out strandedpanda.com. You find all the things, all the podcasts and music. Um, that's what I do. And uh, yeah, this show has been really great for me. I was going through um, a very big change in my belief system when me and Matthew really met, and he and started working uh, a good bit on the show and like coming on more often. And we started the Orville Universe podcast together and did a lot of um, – lot. it was nice to have the sort of weekly uh, or whatever, every few days, like, talk <laughs> about ethical issues. It's just a – it's a fun, it's fun. It's fun and informative and lets me flesh out what I believe more and more as I sort of still continue that process of, you know, shaking up what I cha- – shaking off what I grew up with and trying to, really, like, figure out what I really care about and what I want. So – uh, it's been it's been really great. I appreciate appreciate the show a lot. Cool, yeah. Thank you guys all. Um, for me, uh, kind of a similar thing. I um, Star Wars was my babysitter when I was growing up. That was the thing that I watched when uh, my mother needed to go out shopping or something like that. And I, when I first started to become a, a teenager and started to think like ethical thoughts and you know what should I do and what's the right thing, often the thought process in my head was what would Yoda do, um, and mm-hmm. and that was how I often approached things. Um, and wound up actually writing a paper in grad school on ethics for um, about a conversation between uh, Yoda and some other philosophers. And so I've always loved the idea of looking at how these stories can be metaphors for our own world and for how, you know, a story like the X-Men can be about the rights of people with powers, but it's also a metaphor for issues of um, civil rights in our own world or um, how Luke Cage can be about a superhero in a hoodie uh, not getting shot by police uh, and, and what that says about uh, situations in their own world and things like that. Um, so, so yeah, so I really love that. And it, I've been really, um, as Paul said, this kind of started with him and I having uh, late night conversations and then both being egotistical enough to think the rest of the world would want to listen. Uh, so it's been great to find out so many other people cared about this. Um, so with that, let me just kind of uh, dive into some of our questions. And I want to start with one um, that uh, comes from Tim Auble, who's a good friend of uh, a number of us and has been someone who I do want to get on the podcast at some point soon. And he asks, uh, he wants us to talk about what he calls the ethics of recruitment. And he, he, he means by that, in many stories, a group wants to go around to recruit people to expand their group, which puts the recruits in danger they may not have had to worry about otherwise. Is it ethical to recruit people who would otherwise have had a quiet life? Does it depend on whether the bad guys are hunting them is it selfish to try to grow your group if the recruit already has a happy life? 
I feel like we're looking primarily at Professor X in this moment. Um, but certainly there's a number of stories. Um, one that Matt and I are talking about a lot, The Boys, uh, has this same kind of idea. Um, so can I throw it out to you all? Um, what do you think about um, the way superheroes kind of team build, sometimes going to folks who might not yet be in any kind of trouble or think there's anything to worry about? What's, what, what's your take on that, that issue? Who's going to be first? <laughs> um, I can go first. I made notes beforehand because I'm an overachiever. Um, so I wasn't, I didn't know the, the context of the X-Men in particular. Um, the first thing, my first reaction was probably not, but I actually revised that a little bit. Um, I think that assuming there is not a coercion or a major power differential, talking to people and approaching people is okay. Uh, forcing people to join is not um, and what it really made me think about is is that it is okay and I think a good thing to raise the concept with people who maybe are not involved and are complacent and are not involved because they feel like it doesn't affect them. Uh, mm-hmm. And going to those people and saying, actually, this is a thing that is happening and I can't make you do anything about it and I can't make you care about it, but I can tell you that by pretending it's not happening, you are being complacent to this, I think that that is actually a good and important thing. Um, So I would say coercing people into being recruits, probably not. Making people aware that there are problems they could work against, probably good. Right, and you're never... Go on. I think that uh, part of the problem with this question, it's a great question, but part of the issue is that I agree with Becky that like saying, hey, do you want to come do this thing that's important? Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But we know how this works in stories, which is the heroes show up and they're like, we found you, come join us. And the person's like, no, I have a happy life and I don't want to leave. And then the bad guys immediately show up and blow up their house and they have to join them. And that's not the hero's fault, but that is how the narrative always goes. So the heroes aren't coercing the recruit, but the narrative literally, like, I cannot think of an example where that's not the case. Um, And also... Real quick, I also think that the uh, the X-Men are a bit different. Well, the X-Men with ethical questions are often different than any other kind of hero because the X-Men are, in fact, a marginalized group, or mutants mm-hmm. are. And so they are always being persecuted in their universe, whereas right. if it's like the Justice League, like the Flash is fine. Leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, Paul, you had you had up with an example of where they're not? Yeah. It doesn't well, always so- happen? Right. So, I mean, I think that's a great point that the plot very, very often just forces the issue and and doesn't really, it takes away kind of the agency and and kind of from the conversation. Um, I do think with the X-Men, it often is, you know, telling a mutant like, hey, you're a mutant. This is how all this stuff works. Like you're going to face discrimination. Seems like a responsible thing to do. Whether that's like you have to come to my school, that's maybe a different question. Um, I do think like in in one of the first things I thought of was in Civil War, where Tony Stark goes to Queens and he's like, hey, you're Spider-Man. Come to Germany with me to try and stop, you know, this these super soldiers from getting on a plane. Like, you know, I mean, Peter Parker was he was already doing this thing. He was already like slinging webs and stuff, but he wasn't involved in, you know, international disputes um and fighting super soldiers he was like i don't even know what he was doing but he was probably just like hey give that backpack back or whatever like (laughs) you know someone was knocking over convenience store right so i think tony definitely escalated his entry into the the world of you know 
uh, enhanced people or whatever in a way that seems fairly irresponsible given the massive uh, power differential there, really. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, uh, to, to sort of leapfrog off of that point uh, and a point Becky was making, the, it is very important about uh, the means that it is being used to try to recruit, like, how you approach it. And also, like, the, the entities need to be cognizant of what influence, what, what power they have, um, even just by their very being. Like, if Superman, co- like, uh, one of the things we we watched, or we watched, we, we talked about on this very podcast, Matthew, uh, in the graphic novel Kingdom Come, when Superman drops in to tell a bunch of the, the uh, younger people, you know, hey, we need you, you want to join the, the Greater Justice League. Um, and then a bunch of them just went, wow, I just felt like I got asked to, you know, step. So like the, the fact that it was Superman who was asking, them, um, even though all he said was, Hey, this is your choice. We just, we need the help. So if you want to try to build something better, please come along. Well, you're Superman saying that. So you've got to be careful because just, even if you're all like, Hey, it's all on you. It's all up to you. If you're Tony Stark being like, come to Germany with me if you want, Peter Parker's all stars in the eyes. Oh my God, it's Tony Stark, yeah. right? Um, it's very important that you make sure that your attempt at soft recruitment is not actually coercive in some way in order for it to be ethical, I think. Right. That there, If there's such a huge power imbalance that the person doesn't really feel like they have the ability to con- not consent, um, I, th- I think that's really... And it, it relates actually to, my, to the next question I have is how much does it... How much of a difference does it make if the person you're trying to recruit is a kid. Hmm. I was just going to say, also, a Peter's a child. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe no course. child soldiers. Yeah, right. Yeah. Of course, there's the Robin. He's not like eight, you know? Yeah. 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 Like, and you do get the like super young kids where you're like, mm, this seems like a really bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. And the entire sure. Teton Titans show has... Right. shall we say issues but recently... um as does the powerpuff girls really but uh um i recently read Look, a comic they where are, they are basically 10 days old in some episodes like <laughs> what in the heck <laughs> jessica you gonna say i mean that's how if you get a clone superhero they're like a couple of days old they're fine yeah uh, vision yeah. vision was born yesterday yeah, you know? it's okay. <laughs> right right uh, which is why it's so easy to do I uh, yeah. recently read a comic, I mean, it was from the 80s, but, you know, Robin is various different ages over the course of many, many, many comics. And usually, I think, usually the comics say he started at 12, but there's definitely a moment in the new Teen Titans where he's like, I've been Robin since I was eight. And I was like, whoa, you don't <laughs> even have all your motor skills yet. Like, <laughs> first of all, what the hell was, I mean, look, we know that Bruce Wayne does not think, but like. That's a big question. But also, like, why were your parents letting you on the trapeze? Like, I have a lot of questions about this universe. And yet, <laughs> at the same time, I love kids' sidekicks, so. Yeah. So It's definitely the... a thing. I, I, I was say, uh, one thing I, I just wanted to also throw out is, uh, Jess, I, I like the point you made about how often it's the hero shows up and they don't mean to do anything. But then because of the way the story works, the, the, the possible recruit is then attacked and so feels like they have to join. Um I do think, though, there are some stories, and The Boys, which Matt and I have been watching recently, is a is the best example of this. But I do think there are other ones where the hero either 100% knows or should realize 
that by going to the home of the person they're trying to recruit, oh, yeah. yeah. they're putting a target on that person's back. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that person then getting attacked is not always just narrative plot coincidence. Right. Uh, and I think that and, also makes and, it like you maybe shouldn't be putting other people in danger just to recruit them. Yeah. Also in The Boys, he constantly uses deception to recruit people. So it's more manipulation than recruitment, you know. He's constantly deceiving people like, oh, we have to do this because of this. And then you find out, oh, no, that's not the situation at all. That's, yeah. I I just let the bad guy see your face. And so now you're in as much danger as I am. Right. Mm -hmm. Whatever you do. So so now I'd like to disagree with myself slightly uh, because (laughs) there, there is a point, right, depending on what you're recruiting for where i do think it's more of an ethical gray area because if if it's like hey thanos is putting together yeah, the infinity yeah. gems and going to undo half of existence uh of sentient life you know maybe at that point you kind of have to make some concessions because time is a factor yeah. um i still don't think like you know, pushing someone up against a wall and saying you must fight or you may as well be dead already is not okay. But the how how big of an impact what you're trying to solve is going to have kind of informs what means need to sort of by necessity be acceptable. If the you know gentle reach your hand out and hope they take it isn't gonna cut it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny not, that. that oh. oh, go on. Just that that's when Tony's like, no, you shouldn't come with us to try and stop Thanos to Peter. It's like, you're yeah. just a kid. It's like, wait, it's like, no, now it's totally reasonable yeah, to be literally... like, by any means necessary. <laughs> a few like... years ago, you were all like, hop on a plane with me and let's go break some international laws. And now <laughs> yeah. you're all like, nope, the universe is at stake. Maybe you should stay home. Well, Tony Stark's a this, bad dad. Tony's like, come fight my friends. I want you to punch right, people right. that I hang out with, but yeah. not actual bad guys. I mean, yeah, really, you could thought it would be people I like, but, but not my. I so I, I want to acknowledge that Jessica is introducing a completely new thought that Tony Stark might be ethically hypocritical. Mm, <laughs> no, I don't know. Say that. What? Um, and I, I want to go back to something Becky said actually, because uh, Jake, where you were just going, reminded me of this. Um, because Becky, I'm not sure if this is what you meant, Becky, but I'm wondering if this is a, a logical sort of uh, next step to it. I'm wondering if part of the recruitment thing can sometimes be like, hey, we'd like you to join, and if you don't want to, that's fine. But there's an element where sometimes what you need to say is, look, there are these terrible problems happening. You have a power to solve it. And and kind of now the Ben Parker, like, with great power comes great responsibility. Like, you know, sort of the, like, you know, Han, you see what the Empire is going to do. You have to get involved and help. Um, is that, do you think, does that become a that- second part of it when the recruitment is... You have this power, you need to do something? Yeah, I, I think that that definitely, I mean, that, that's a big question that Spider-Man likes to talk about because of the great power and great responsibility. I was honestly, one of the ways that I was thinking about this is less direct, like I am a, a superhero recruiting other superheroes and more thinking about community action, um, almost mm. in a real world sense. Um, like as a white person, the realization of, racism which and of racism not as the kkk but of racism as this is a systematic problem that i am part of to what extent can i help fix it and if i am not actively doing that i am being complacent in it like that that is sort of what i was thinking of which is a little bit 
which is not about superheroes. But I do think that as as we've been discussing, like ways in which, you know, the, the stories that we consume and the stories we tell reflect the real world, I think waking people up to problems that they may not already see as a first step towards recruiting um, is is really what I was thinking of. But also, yes, the question of, hey, you have this power, you probably have the right to decide not to use it, but by doing that, by not exercising it, you are still having an impact on the world around you because if you use this power, you can change things for the better. Um, which, like, that is a really tricky question, but I, I do still come down on the side of you cannot coerce that, but you can encourage it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a uh, a parallel, just to, to, to bounce off of your point, Becky, and, and a point I made when we were doing our introductions, there's a parallel here, right, where between uh, community involvement in action in uh, problems with our culture and the the allegory or the, the I guess, allegorical uh, facet of superhero recruitment where we're saying you are in a position where you can help solve this problem and you have the capacity to do so. And I think in those cases that, you know, there's a, there's a way that we can portray that recruitment in our media that mirrors how we want that recruitment to occur in real life for the issues that, that are affecting us for things like trying to stamp out systemic racism and, and, and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, I want to use that to actually kind of transition to our next question. Cause I think as someone pointed out any of these questions, we could do a full 90 minute episode on. Uh, and I know I appreciate you sure your dedication to this podcast. I don't think I'm going to keep you <laughs> off for seven hours. Um, <laughs> so let me go to a question that comes from uh, Susan Q. Allosaurus. Um, and it, but it builds right on something we were just talking about in terms of uh, uh, Tony Stark. Um, but I think it applies to one or two other heroes as well. Um, what are the ethics of using great personal wealth for vigilante justice instead of societal reform? Um, and it applies, I think, to Tony Stark, who we were just discussing. Uh, the person writing this question said, looking at you, bats. Um, I think Oliver Queen might also uh, feature into this conversation. Um I'm guessing from the looks I'm seeing that people have some thoughts. So let's, let's share some of those thoughts. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go first again, but <laughs> actively this time instead of just waiting. <laughs> um, so a few months ago, I rewatched the first Iron Man, which is a really good movie that features a lengthy sequence in the middle where Tony is trying out his armor for the first time and he goes back to, to where he had been kidnapped And he slaughters a whole bunch of villains. And this is spurred by him seeing a news report of these people are refugees. They're homeless. They've lost everything. They have no land. They have no houses. They have no money. They have no food. They have no clothing. They are desperately in need of aid. And his idea of aid is shooting bad guys. He is a billionaire. This is never at any point in the movie followed by, and then he sent them aid so they can have houses. Like... The narrative is about him realizing weapons manufacturing is not necessarily ethical, and he solves that problem for himself by turning himself into a weapon. Like, I'm not, like, that did not ping for me at all in 2008. Rewatching it in 2020, I was like, what the hell? I am so, I'm so mad. It's still a really good movie. He's still a really interesting character. I still like the character, but I'm looking at it with full-on eat-the-rich like eyes now i i i cannot like i'm oh i'm so mad (laughs) so uh that's how i feel about that that's not ethical punching people when you 
could have a much wider societal impact and give people the things they need to actually have tangible improvements in their lives, you should do that. I'd like to talk about Batman <laughs> while we're on that note. Um, so I've been, I've been reading a lot of recent Batman comics. And one thing that I've noticed is that, like, this is not a surprise, but Gotham is a hellhole. Gotham is the yep. worst place on the planet. Like, to an insane degree that's just, like, literally every day the somebody poisons the reservoir and then the next day everybody gets joker venom and then the next day the city is bombed into rubble and then the next day there's a plague and it never so lets like up 2020 yeah they're always living in 2020 but the thing is like why would the, the question becomes why would anybody stay there because nothing is ever presented as there's there's no redeeming quality to gotham it's not like well but there's a, a lively arts scene like there's nothing it's just horrible unless you live in wayne manor so the only reason people would stay there is because they are so desperately poor that they literally cannot get in the car and go 40 minutes south to metropolis like that's the only reason there's no other reason to stay there and if that's the case if the city is this bad then it's I mean, it's it's unethical to be a billionaire in general, but the idea that Bruce Wayne has that much money and he's using it to make himself like special spacesuits with bat ears on them so that he can go <laughs> punch aliens. Like, let the Green Lanterns do that. Give some of that money to charity. Pay your taxes. There's there's no way he's paying his taxes. It's just it's it's very hard to to keep liking the character. Not that I actually do like the character, but it's very hard to tolerate the character if you apply any logic to the economy of Gotham, and I know that, you know, he does actually, Bruce Wayne is a philanthropist. Tony Stark is a philanthropist. We know that because they say they're philanthropists, but we don't actually see any of that, except maybe at the end of an episode of Batman, the animated series, he'll give some criminal a job at Wayne Enterprises, but he spent the previous 21 minutes of the episode punching the poor and the mentally ill. So the lip service doesn't balance out the actual text that we see. And and I would actually say there's one movie in which this, this subject is brought up, but it's not Bruce who does it. It's his parents Mm -hmm. in Batman. And I, I, I think the Chris Nolan, the first two Chris Nolan movies are some of my favorite comic book movies. Um, then he decides to attack the Occupy movement in the third movie, and it just goes way off the rails. But um, in Batman Begins, one of the points they specifically make is that um, Bruce's parents, the Waynes, uh, Thomas and, and Martha, um, had specifically been like attempting to use their money to rebuild the city and to address those issues. They built the monorail, and they were trying to do these things. And that... Um, uh, Rachel Ghoul, um, waiting for Paul to pr- correct my pronunciation, um, was specifically like, and, and his whole League of Shadows was a specifically waging economic warfare on the city of Gotham and like basically like undid what the Waynes did. I loved that plot line because I loved that it was talking about like, yes, crime stems from poverty and from economic downturn. And I kept waiting for the moment when Bruce would say, so now that I've like beaten up Rajal Ghoul, I'm going to now continue what my father and mother were doing and use my money to try and rebuild the economy. But then, of course, that doesn't happen. But then where would he get all those wonderful toys, Matthew? <laughs> you mentioned uh, a monorail. <laughs> you mentioned yeah. a monorail, which uh, 
I always think of Metropolis in, you know, contrast to Gotham. Metropolis has a monorail. Metropolis is this beautiful, gleaming, futuristic city where everybody seems to be comfortably well off and living in like a skyscraper, like on the Jetsons. And that Superman didn't do any of that. Like, that's not what he does. He didn't build that infrastructure, which begs the question, is Lex Luthor a more ethical billionaire than Bruce Wayne? Is he giving more <laughs> to his community than Bruce Wayne? Well, uh, audience members, I hope you are sipping cups of tea right so... now because the tea is being poured, whatever the phrase is. So spill, spill, she's spilling the tea, and spilling, like, spilling. Thank point. you. Um, to to a point you were making earlier, Jess. I think um, the cost of living in Gotham, if you if you do the math, has to be negative. Uh, they have to pay people to live there in order for it to make sense. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's what his philanthropy is, is he's paying to bring people into Gotham so that people will live there so that eventually he can fix the place so that he has, so that he has people that can be victims so he can fight the villains so he feels better about himself. Yeah. Batman as a character is a problem. Uh, I'm just going to suggest, <laughs> what if he spends, just say like $50 million dollars. Just to improve security and and actual bring in trained <laughs> medical psychiatrists to Arkham Asylum, <laughs> like. Oh, but see, then they always fall in love with the patients, and then yeah. they escape. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they need to get rid of that place. It's going to happen every time. That's how it works. Just, that's that's science. Mm-hmm. That's mean... just a Harley Quinn generator. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> really true. It's really true. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, there's something else I was going to go with that. Um, it, is there a – I mean, I I feel like later in the show, Oliver Queen does turn more towards philanthropy. And certainly he's not – he's not using quite as much of his money for, you know, special toys. He's just got a really nice bow and arrow and some computers. Um, are there billionaires in the in any of these worlds we can think of who do truly, like, try to realize that maybe some philanthropy is helpful as well? I feel like in – like most of these stories, all of the billionaires do some kind of like hand wavy philanthropy, like, you know, billionaire genius play playboy philanthropy. Okay. He's like, I'm kind of the only name in clean energy right now. It's like, okay, I guess we'll take your word for it. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, Bruce Wayne, so he's like paying for orphanages and whatever. And Lex Luthor's <laughs> like building some city that then Superman will destroy so he can make Superman look bad or something. But like, we, the shows and the, the movies don't really engage with social and especially like economic issues in that way. Um, which was kind of my answer to another question that might come later, but, um, <laughs> but you know, like those issues just aren't addressed. And like, I don't know when I look at the world today, I think of Catwoman's quote in the dark Knight rises, which, you know, you say is a, and maybe is deliberately a shot at the occupy movement. I kind of viewed her as the hero and like Bane as like, those are up there on my list of villains, like who have a point, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, how did you think you and your friends could live so large while the rest of us had, you know, so little to fight over basically. And, um, those like that sort of alluded to, but then it's like, Oh, but actually it's just a terrorist plot to blow up the city because you killed my dad. Like, but <laughs> spoiler alert. I don't know. Well, and um, that's really, but her, her dad is Rachel Ghoul, and his whole right. point is that these cities get too big, yeah. and he needs to destroy those power systems 
because they come become corrupt. So really, the whole League of Shadows is kind of doing the same thing you're talking about. So even though it, it is to blow up the city or whatever, like the point is Gotham once it gets that big or and I guess I guess it's tied to wealth to, and in some way. Concentration of wealth and corruption. Yeah. In it. But the, my point mostly is that just like they kind of like touch on these issues. But then they just kind of like hand wave them away as well. And it's like, now we're going to fight. Well, also, mm-hmm. like one, one of the hard things about any media like this is that inherently, like people want to watch an action story. Right. The solution to these problems is billionaires pay taxes and there aren't billionaires anymore. And that money right. goes to social services and to lifting everyone's quality of life and equalizing the yeah. economic world. That's really Heart, like I know those of us on, on this call would be interested in in watching that. <laughs> I, I, I watch that, <laughs> but yeah. in well, terms of an action movie, it's yeah. probably going to be a little less successful. And so, tr- so I think that there's like for storytellers, it's kind of a bind between how do I make this an exciting story where people have superpowers and there are cool gadgets that cost gajillions of dollars, right. and also fix a problem and so the problem gets to be punched and then the rest kind of falls by the wayside yeah i would say that's black panther though right Mm. like that's what happens in black panther is that there's a villain who wants to free the people free his people uh but he wants to do it through violence and then black panther is convinced you're right they need freeing they need help and then he starts community centers and starts to actually use their technology to help the help their community all over the world um so I, I love that that's in there. I love that the moral argument is won by the villain, but even though the battle is won by the hero. Yeah, and I think you found the, our ethical billionaire. Our ethical yeah, super there you go. That's um, the one. Yeah, that's actually a good yeah. one. Um, yeah, Black Panther is probably the only yeah. example in modern media. because And interesting, I think, and possibly intentional social commentary that he's not an American uh, massively wealthy person. Mm-hmm. Because one thing that... Ha- that persists it's it's very true to life but all of these massively wealthy heroes that seem to want to solve their problems through rugged individualism and doing and taking charge and doing things on their own rather than helping society are americans yeah and probably don't wear well at least they wear masks not the right kind (laughs) of masks in the current context but at least they're wearing masks (laughs) Uh, i want to read one or two comments from the chat uh and then actually ask a follow-up question to this um First of all, um, Special Sailor Steve points out that Catwoman is a class war icon, uh, which I think, yeah, that kind of what we're getting at makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, Susan, who'd asked that question, actually, she also took the Batman thing in a slightly different direction as well. Uh, and I'll read her comment and let us respond a bit, and then I want to ask a follow-up to what we were just discussing. Because uh, she says, um, I'm really only familiar with the Batman movies, but it seems super hypocritical to me that he had this big thing about not killing, but doesn't have any trouble letting people die. Um, and I think she's specifically referring to in Batman Begins, where it's, you know, I'm I'm not going to kill you, but I'm going to leave you on this train to die. Uh, and that there's really other occasions where that happens. Um, and Poor that... Liam Neeson. Becky and, I, Becky and I are like trying to make eye contact through the <laughs> Skype because we have been friends for a long time. And we basically walked out of that theater and we're like, what the hell? That's not Batman. Like that, that <laughs> actual line, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. Like, this is a man who has he performed does. CPR on the Joker. Like, he is uh-huh. compelled to save everyone. That is literally his motivating drive. So, yeah, no, I have a lot of I have a lot of trouble yeah. with that. Uh, Vibrant Jacks also said, uh, and this is kind of going back to the conversation we're having about responsibility and the like, um, that they liked, um, I, like they, I like how Peter Parker says, 
when you can do the things you can do and you don't, and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you. Um, and I, I kind of like that as a, it's a little more nuanced than with great power comes great responsibility. It's more of the um, Martin Luther King idea of, you know, that, that complic- complicity in the face of evil is, is supporting it. Um, it. There's a great quote about the status quo that I can't remember the exact words of, but it's, it's that same idea. And I think it ties into everything we were saying. Um, well, and you're talking about philanthropy. That's very much philanthropy too, not just the other things, but or not just the um, responsibility of that, but also the responsibility of uh, using your money in other ways than becoming a vigilante. Right. Yeah, I think it's a great quote because it does it encompasses that core idea of with great power comes great responsibility, and it it's so multifaceted in how it can be applied. But at the same time, it's just genuinely very sad because this is a teenage boy who is sitting there saying, my uncle died because of me. When, no, your uncle died because a bad person shot him. And, like, you made a bad right. call, but you didn't kill him. It It's simultaneously such a correct quote and also, like, oh, no, kiddo, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is, I mean, it is heart-wrenching for sure. Uh, just this morning, uh, Paul and I, uh, an episode that Paul and I recorded on the ethics of the Clone Wars uh, went up. Uh, Becky, we would have included you, but I don't know if you've seen the Clone Wars TV show. Okay. I haven't. Uh, you really should. I won't spoil anything, but one of the things we talked about is that how this is actually one of the biggest things that leads to the downfall of the Jedi is that they become so convinced of their own responsibility to do good that if anything bad ever happens in the universe, it must be their fault. And this can very much be a, a sort of power fantasy narcissism idea of like, I'm responsible for everything, so I have to do everything. So if you're in my way of stopping me from doing anything, you must be helping the bad. Like, it can just become such a problem. Um, but- Honestly, it's it's rude of you to quote my therapy sessions like that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I will do anything for the good of this podcast. Um, we're sitting here the- talking about superhero stories. Uh, there are predominantly power fantasy based and it's i think a little it's important to acknowledge that above all else which gives us weird things like i have a pile of money let me go pay a guy to make a fancy car for me to fight evil Uh, and this actually gets this is the follow-up question i wanted to ask and and maybe this is the answer this question is this whole superhero thing is dumb let's stop i don't think that's the answer but but um you know the whole basis of much of this whole comic book superhero story genre is it's fun to watch people punch each other for good reasons and you know wang pow you know etc um as we said you know i've said many times i would love captain america civil war that's two hours of bureaucratic wrangling about how to balance communal you know communal responsibility and accountability with individual freedom we're not going to get that movie because that's not what people go pay to, to see on screen as much um so the question is like if, if all these comic book superhero movies are born out of a, you know, action is fun to see, and that as the stories have gone on, we've put more and more nuance into why they are punching each other, are we getting to a point where, I'm trying to think how to best phrase this, but it, it feels like we are more and more becoming aware that punching people is not the best way to solve most problems. Nazis on the street, perhaps, but most others, no. So where does that put the genre of comic book action stories? I think part of it is what you just said, like Nazis on the street. Okay. Other targets. Like it, I think that superhero stories need to be more thoughtful about who the targets of the punching are. Like, um, so the show arrow has come up sort of passingly a few times here. And I love 
the character of Green Arrow in the comics, I struggled a lot with the first couple seasons of the show and bailed entirely when they killed Sarah, even though she got better. Um, (laughs) And part of that was because the first season spent so much time uh, using the language of Occupy and using the language of social justice. But what actually happened in every episode was that Oliver would show up somewhere. He would beat up or actually kill like the hired security for some millionaire. And then he'd wag his finger at the millionaire and be like, you're so mean. And then backflip out the window and consider the problem solved. And it's like, it was such a thoughtless way to address uh, corruption and entrenched power. And it could have been so much more interesting. I'm not saying necessarily that he should have gone and punched the billionaire, although it would have been more satisfying to watch but at least then he would have been targeting the person who deserved it and not the person who's just trying to get a paycheck. So I think, you know, that's just one example of like, this is obviously a much bigger issue than one mediocre show, but uh, being more thoughtful about like who exactly the superhero is actually fighting. Yeah. We've talked some recently about like, where do henchmen fall? You know, and that idea of like, it used to be that if you're working for Joker, you're working for someone else. Well, clearly you're just as evil and you deserve to get punched uh, or kicked off a building or hit in the head with an iron pipe. But now when you, it gets more into like, who are the people who are supporting him because um, they believe in his mission and who, because like you said, they need a paycheck, you know, and where does that, where's all that fall? Honestly, I, I think oh, what, one way to approach it would potentially be smaller stories and lower stakes stories where it's not a question of we have to save the, where we are not fighting Thanos, but where you can look at who is the local corrupt politician and what can we do to stop him and find ways to actually look at conflicts that are not solved by being Iron Man. Um, while still trying to fit them into an action context. And I I know, like, I wasn't as into the Marvel TV shows as I I know some of you were, but my impression from listening to the podcast is that that was part of what what several of you found very appealing about them, is that it was closer to that kind of conflict. In in particular, Daredevil Season 3 did this. It did something very, very similar to what you're describing in that uh, we have Kingpin who's been uh, redeemed in the public eye and running for office and you've got um, Foggy and um, Ida has been Karen, thank you, it's been way too long since I've watched the show Uh, Foggy and Karen who are trying to, like, neither of them are super in any particular way in terms of, like, you know, elevated above normal human Foggy is super in my heart Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's super, super sweet, but that doesn't actually, you know, help you fight I, the baddies. I mean, with, he has with he your... has the superpower of of empathy, which it turns out right. is very rare in superpowers. Yeah, but yeah. that's the one. <laughs> it's honestly the one I appreciate the most in real life. So, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> sorry, and, we go, I interrupted. Go ahead. So, and Karen has, uh, yeah, also a very a lot of compassion, right? Um, sometimes needlessly or sometimes applied where sometimes i don't think it much, should be yeah. like castle uh frank castle uh no sorry <laughs> uh lost cause anyway um it's <laughs> painting skulls on his shirts karen uh so what i'm trying to get at is that, that 
while Daredevil is still, you know, angsting about how much he wants to, how much he enjoys punching bad guys, um, they're actually doing the, like, trying to do the work underneath to get the truth out there and, and try to, um, try to fight against that kind of corruption and that kind of, of corrupt politician in more social ways. Um, and I, that's one of the reasons I really enjoyed Interestingly, my favorite parts about Daredevil season three have very little to do with the character Daredevil, uh, for that reason, because there's, there's so much of this, but it is a rare thing in these stories that you get that sort of, uh, all other take because people like the big fight scenes, I think, especially in big, big budget movies. It's one of those too. That's true. (laughs) That's true. It's one of my favorites. Oh, go ahead, Jessica. Just by bringing up Karen, I think you bring in um, a really something that I think used to be really key to superhero stories, and we've lost a bit uh, as the culture and how we consume news has changed. But the idea of superhero or the superhero ally as a journalist and like how important journalism is. I mean, Superman, first superhero journalist, like right from the beginning, it was baked in. And we see that with so many characters, partially because it became the rule that you had to have a super, uh, you had to have a journalist girlfriend. But yeah, mm-hmm. but like even I mean, Peter Parker is a photojournalist. Like, it's that aspect. It's a lot harder to do in some ways now because we don't have the same kind of like the Daily Planet. But it's also, I don't think superhero stories use social media very well um there are many avenues that could be explored with that but the idea of like fighting for truth and using journalism as the way to do that i would love to see more of that yeah because I, yeah. To, to me what that's saying is like we want the social change it's just that there are some jerks who are going to get in the way of social change and we have to punch them so that the newspaper can get published or so that the thing can happen um i think one of my favorite examples of this is um, and it, it definitely comes from a comic book, even if it's not quite superhero-y, although in some ways it is. Uh, and that's V for Vendetta. Because what I love so much about V for Vendetta is that, um, you know, th- there's sort of two tracks on which the story is happening. One of which is, can he punch all the bad guys? A lot of which he's doing for revenge. But that also, while he's punching the bad guys, he's mostly doing that as a distraction so that this non-violent social movement can grow and change and that the thing that overcomes the the society is a nonviolent movement for social change of the citizenry who've been part inspired by him but have also been fired up by like you know he punches people to get the secrets to show the hypocrisy um and i i think that's a great example of what we're talking about here where it's there's violence because it you know the sword fights look great on screen but but it's much more about that you know he's not going to punch his way to a new society and he specifically says because i my only way of violence i can't be a part of the new society we're building. And like Evie right. works at the news station and um, the Stephen Fry character is a media figure. Right. And then there's the other media figure who's like evil. And the Tucker know, Carlson, but... yeah. Yeah, yeah. It is nice to see Karen as a journalist. Like, even though she wasn't in the beginning of the show, she becomes a journalist throughout the show in, in Daredevil. Um, it is weird. I, I, I Growing up, I remember the like sort of hero journalist was like a big deal and the idea of seeking truth over all else and, you know, uh, finding the, finding the truth no matter what. And like, 
I do feel like that's kind of gone away in most media, and it's probably really dangerous because we need that, yeah. Um, yeah. especially the way our society is structured. Like the the uh, a, a truthful media is incredibly important to keep all the other powers in check. You know, yeah. total stories, fourth estate. Yeah. Our, our stories reflect our cultural values, and sadly, uh, facts don't seem to be a cultural value anymore. Yeah, yeah, but it's also back... a feedback loop too, though. Yeah. No, hundred percent. 100%. Yeah. If you look back at like golden age Superman stories, he and Lois were always being attacked because they were journalists. Like nobody had any idea mm-hmm. that Clark Kent was Superman. Right. They were so dangerous because they were good at their jobs that yeah. bad guys and like, you know, spies because World War II were constantly putting bombs in their cars and stuff. Right. Yeah, there's one episode in the animated series that's like mostly Clark Kent and Lois Lane, and it's not its not a bunch of Superman. And I'd really like to see more stories like that that focus on, you know, them in those real-world roles. And then right. it's like, you can have a little bit of Superman, too. But like. yeah. <laughs> That's why Lois and Clark is my favorite Superman adaptation, oh. without question. It's, I mean, because they had no budget, so it was just Clark all the time. <laughs> have you all been to, um, there's some dumb name for it. I think it's the new museum, the museum. But it's the yeah. the museum to journalists in Washington D.C. because mm-hmm. um, they had this may have been a temporary exhibit I'm not sure but they had an exhibit on hero journalist Lois Lane. There was mm-hmm. nothing about Superman. There's nothing about anyone else. It was about how Lois Lane is like a role model for great journalists. Yeah, and I'm, I'm tearing up a little bit remembering it was so powerful. I love her um, so much. <laughs> let me uh, uh, once again we can go very deep on this. Let me uh, transition to. Um, a uh, great question from Nathaniel Milner. Um, and this is one of the ones where it's specific to one particular story, but I think we can also broaden it out because it, it touches on so much. Um, and he points out, in the Age of Ultron, uh, the second Avengers movie, the heroes are evacuating Sokovia, and Wanda uses her powers to mind control the locals and force them out uh, at a point where the people aren't sort of evacuating fast enough. Um, uh is using mind control to get people to do the right thing in a, like where they're literally facing death in ethical choice. I have an opinion. We have one thumb up, one thumb down and a couple of not sure's. I would say specifically in that movie, it's ethical. I don't know if it, it's, it's obviously not always ethical, uh, to mind control people to make their decisions better for them. But in that particular case, I believe she's using mind control basically because as a communication device, because she's letting the entire city know they need to run. Mm. So I don't think she's necessarily forcing people out as much as she's letting the entire city know what's going on. But I I don't know. Basically being uh, everyone's phone alert is a huge difference than robbing people of their agency to to make sure they make the right choice right. i just i know sir that that cannot be something that a hero does yeah i think it depends on the act the the context and the extent of the mind control like how what you're making people do and how long you're making them do it for um mm-hmm. i think as it should always be a a, a last resort but when we were talking before about recruitment i was thinking about all the stories where it turns out that professor x like 
made various students join the X-Men. Like there's some, Mm. like he definitely messed with Jean Grey's mind in a few different timelines. And (laughs) Professor X always thinks he's doing the right thing. And he very often is not. So yeah, I think by and large, it's, it's not a good call, but in that particular example, I can't get too mad at Wanda about it. And you know she beat herself up yeah. about it because she's always beating herself up about stuff. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Right. Well, yeah, I think I think crowd control in the face of what is essentially a na- like a natural disaster. In this case, it's not natural, but evacuating people who will be killed, who are bystanders, is very different than saying I am making a choice for you. Um, like right. it is technically because people could decide not to evacuate, but I think that having an extremely specific and limited circumstance like that is very different than Professor X messing with someone's mind to make them join his team. Like, I, I, I think, bec- like, in this case, I am okay with it if it is extremely limited in scope in response to an immediate, like, clear and present danger that cannot be effectively dealt with in other ways. If that were to linger, that would not be acceptable. Right. So, sort of a... Uh... What if what if some of those people would rather have died in their in their homeland than leave? Would you And they didn't get to make that choice. Would you like be okay that, with like Iron Man picking them up or Thor picking them up and flying them away? Like if it's not mental. Uh, if yeah, they're like no unhand me, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be okay with that either. Like uh, and th- maybe this is just my own personal personal ethical system getting in the way, but I don't I don't think that I have the right to make that choice, or the, that anybody has the right to make that choice for other people. Um, you can let them know that hey, if you don't leave, you are going to die. Uh, and if they still choose to do that, then still choose to say like we, we have. Uh, heroes who are presented with this thing and they're all like yeah i know i'm going to i know i'm going to die but like i think me being here make i think me being here is what needs to happen um i would also be uncomfortable mind controlling them to be all like nope sorry you got to get out because we can't because we can't stand to uh for for you to die here um it sort of it reminds me there was an episode of Jessica Jones where they had Jessica and Kilgrave are palling around as Jessica's trying to teach him about uh being oh, right. a hero and he like mind controls a guy to not commit suicide if I recall correctly, which is like very grim. Uh but like I think it's a murder even... suicide if I recall. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. murder it's gonna be a murder. So the murder part, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> Preventing a murder in that case. I think that your choices are clearly wrong, and so if that's the power that you have in that case, sure. Um but yeah, the like that oh no, that's right. He's he's trying to prevent a murder and then tr- like goes to try to convince the guy right. to turn the gun on himself, and that's where Jessica steps in. You're right. I was mis misremembering. So well, let me ask so uh, in one of the first episodes that Paul and I did a while ago, we talked about the end of Supergirl season one, in which an alien takes over the planet and basically uses what they call the myriad effect to mind control all of humanity to force them to completely change the economy to prevent global warming. <laughs> um, and we talked about how that was an interesting situation. And so I want to put it into a much more real world situation. If we found out tomorrow that an alien had the power to force all people throughout the world to wear masks and socially distance. And they would be mind controlled and not be, be 
mentally coerced into doing what's needed to stop a pandemic. Should that alien do that? I think it would be, I personally believe it would be unethical. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm going to wag my finger at the alien super hard, but I think it would be unethical to do it. I don't, that, that's my take. I respect other takes, but uh, that I don't, I would not be okay with. I, Becky mentioned earlier the idea of making these stories smaller, and that is very compelling. But the reason they make them so big is every one of these powers, no matter what it is, are problematic. Anytime you're doing, anytime you're saving anyone, you're making decisions they can't make for themselves. You're doing, you're, you're overstepping your boundaries. You're overstepping legal boundaries, ethical boundaries. And the entirety of making these stories so big is because you have to justify these actions. Right. Um, and so these stories kind of have to stay up there for us to keep the kind of engagement, the kind of action stories that, you know, is demanded by this sort of, and I think there's room for those smaller stories and there's room for those like ethical arguments, but so often we just want a good punch them up. So we need, we need bad guys that we can punch. We need like whatever, you know, robots, robots. We can just kill lots of robots, right, Jacob? <laughs> <laughs> I think going back to the I'm, mask. I'm on Team Jacob. I'm, <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm, I'm just teasing Jacob. My, connect, just... my connect, connection is. <laughs> Jessica, you were going to say? I think going back to the mask question, um, what I would want to know, what I'd want the alien to tell me is like, if you do this, how many lives will be saved? I think that that, and I don't know what the tipping point is for me. And I think it would be different for everybody. But if it's a case of like, well, you know, three people, 3,000, 3 million, like there, there is the potential for an enormous amount of life lost. Right. And I mean, that's, that's where we are, right? You know, we've, yeah. we've hundreds of thousands of people have died. And I think that has to be taken into consideration i don't i don't necessarily i don't disagree that it would be unethical to mind control the entire population i i think you're absolutely right i agree that it is unethical to do that but i also think it's unethical to let that many people die and so we're stuck with two questions there um the other thing that i wanted to mention um we we're talking sort of talking around like essentially allowing suicide in some cases like okay you can stay here in Sokovia bye um and I think one of the things that needs to be interrogated there is what religious perspective we're working from because the idea that suicide is a sin and must be stopped by any means necessary is definitely a Christian perspective I I mean I don't actually know the Jewish thinking on it, and I am Jewish, and I don't know how other religions intersect with it, but it is absolutely clear in Christianity. Like this mm-hmm. is yep. so unpacking like the the religious assumptions that are sort of baked into our culture that we don't consider yeah. when we're looking at ethics from a secular perspective. You know, I think that's a good point, and and, and also going to the like. When you're talking about how, like, you, you don't think it's ethical, but also you're not sure. I mean, I think, you know, this whole podcast is about ethics, but I think sometimes something can be unethical, but maybe still the thing we want someone to do. And I think that's an important part of this conversation, um, especially because because to me, the other part of it is I think 
and granted, I'm in a person where, like, you know, I'm, I am very much right now of the, like, I can't stand everyone who's not wearing masks. I'm sure most of us are probably in a similar state. So I think I'm very much on the, yeah, if you can find any way in any way to make people wear masks, do it. But to me, I think the biggest thing that I become afraid of with that is, and this is going to lead us into our next question. Once you say, okay, you have this incredible power, you should only use it when you think it is absolutely necessary to use that power. It is almost absolutely guaranteed that the line at which that person thinks it is necessary to use that power is going to start getting lower and lower and lower. Um, And this is what we're talking about. That happens with the Jedi very much so until it's, you know, you tried to sell me a death stick. You should go rethink your life choices. Um, uh, Not as a suggestion, but as a mind control. Um, and, and so I guess I want to maybe use that to transition to this next question of who should a hero be accountable to? You know, if, if we're saying that a hero can sort of make this decision of when do you use your great power if you think it is absolutely necessary, should a hero just be able to make that decision on their own? Should they be accountable to other people, to a government, to other organizations? What It's kind of the heart of the Team Tony, Team Cap question, but broadening it out somewhat. Who should a hero be accountable to? Who who gets to say, you thought it was necessary to use that power, but maybe you were wrong? Me, personally. <laughs> Lois Lane. <laughs> Lois, Lois Lane. Moral compass. Uh, oh, God. Why can't I remember his name? Uh, works at the Daily Planet. Uh, Harry White? No. Jimmy uh, Olsen? The, the, yeah, Jimmy Olsen. Moral compass, Jimmy Olsen. CIA agent and moral <laughs> yes. compass. Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> I mean, oh, honestly, so it's, now? it's so it's not a helpful answer because it's not clear cut. But I, my gut reaction is a hero should be accountable to the community that they are trying to heroically protect. Mm. Um, I mean, and I think that that is like a, a really big question that we are currently facing is there is a lot of discussion about police forces and should they exist at all what capacity should they function in and there has been a long cultural narrative of like police are heroes are they heroes if the community that they are supposedly working for is currently massively protesting them because of all that brutality they do i mean no the answer to that is no they are not um And the fact that, like, if they are accountable to politicians or if they are accountable only to themselves, that's bad. If they are accountable to the community that they are supposedly serving, that's very different. And then we would see a lot of differences in the way policing works. And so I think superheroics should feel similar to that. If you are saying, I am protecting Metropolis or I am protecting Gotham, you need to be accountable to the people of Metropolis and the people of Gotham. And that's not easy because people are going to feel differently and different people are going to have different takes on it within the same community. So it's not a clear cut. This is where the line is drawn. But if there are cases where a hero is doing something and the community that they say they are protecting says, actually, that's wrong, then that's a pretty good sign that it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was joking with the Lois answer, but I, that that is what that is. I mean, I mean, she that's what she represents. Well, also, Lois is is probably right. She, so. I mean, she's correct, but also like she represents the 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 people of Earth in Superman's story, and she also represents the public opinion. Um, but I think, um, I mean, what my fav- my absolute favorite superhero trope ever is when the superhero is down for whatever reason, and the people of his or her city are like, you'll have to get through us first. And then I cry, and it's emotional. 
Supergirl did that really well. I think the end of the first season of Luke Cage did that really well. And I think Luke Cage is a great example as the first season, second season was kind of all over the place of uh, a hero being accountable to his community and um, being embedded in his community in large part because he doesn't have a secret identity, but you can see, you can see their need for him and their desire for him to live among them and protect them. And there's, there's a back and forth and it's not just somebody descending from on high to enforce their views upon a people. Yeah. I, I think it's very important. It's, and go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, and that ties back into some of our discussions about ethical billionaires, because who are billionaires community? It's other billionaires. And that is very different than the people who they are claiming to protect. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of great discussion about how superheroes can very often fall into like a white savior narrative of like, you know, that I am the person with the power, with the money. And so I can go and help the lower classes, those who don't have power. Um, And I think in some ways it even goes into, Jessica, what you were saying about suicide, you know, that there is still some element of I am deciding what is best for you, Um, you know, and that can be around suicide. It can be around uh, like drug use or things like that. Um, Some weirdo in the chat named J-M-I-L-C-I-C. It's (laughs) Jacob. Uh, He wrote, uh, boy, howdy, was I not okay with Obi-Wan? just randomly forcing someone to stop selling cigarettes and reevaluate their life, entire way of by fo- uh, entire way of life by force uh, or I guess by force capital F is more accurate and yeah I think it, it there's such interesting questions about who gets to make that choice or not and when wh- who gets to decide what is best for you um, and then I think um, I as someone who's worked in the nonprofit industry has seen a lot of horror stories uh, I mean this has been the problem with the Peace Corps and things like that of people with power and influence going to somewhere else and deciding, we know what's best for you. Um, I want to throw out as a counterpoint, because um, I think one, and I, Jessica, I know you, you had a lot of problems with it, I think for good reason. One of the reasons why I love the TV show Arrow is I think it's one of the best examples of heroes being accountable to each other. Because a big part of what pulls uh, Oliver Queen out of his, you know, uh, this is vengeance, you failed the city, etc., is characters like Diggle who are saying, wait a minute, if you're trying to help you need to rethink what helping is. And by four, by about season four or so, you have a team where it seems like almost every episode, one of them is upset about something and wants to help. And it's the rest of the team kind of pulling them back in some way and saying, okay, that's great, but here's where you're letting your desire for vengeance, you know, overcome the desire for justice. Or here's where maybe you're missing something. Um, what do you all think of kind of like hero team up things as a source of accountability where it's them instead of just that one rugged individual, it's them all sort of holding each other account to some extent. I mean, I think not that's... Even... Sorry, go Sorry, ahead. Well, I was just going to say, not not even just heroes and other heroes, but I think it's important for heroes to have a community. The, some of the worst and most dangerous heroes are the ones that shut everyone else out and don't have friends or family or people they care about, and they lose perspective. Um, and, uh, I think it's really important that a hero have someone in their life, even if it's their sidekicks or their, you know, tech guy or whatever. A lot of times that is the thing that their, their connection to humanity that keeps them from going off the rails. Provided they listen to them. Uh, the Lego sure. Batman movie did a great job with that point. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Shout out to the Lego Batman movie <laughs> for making a point that none of the other Batman movies, they were too afraid to touch it. Like, I'm <laughs> dead serious. I think it's brilliant uh, because what what they did in the Lego Batman movie was they had Batman doing this like 
isolationist i'm the best i'm just gonna do me and be super cool and rad all the time and do what i want to do and not pay attention to all the influences in my life and what they say and what they think and by the end of it the only way he like he has to work together even with people like the joker in order to solve problems um so it's it's very important that if you've got a framework like that that your heroes are also listening to each other uh because oftentimes you'll have heroes on these teams where there's a clear power dynamic like if you look at the difference between um the green arrow who joins the justice league in in some later portions uh versus the green lantern uh they both got green in their name very different in terms of what they are capable of doing especially if you're talking about um uh kyle rayner green lantern who's massively op uh please nerf <laughs> kyle rayner dc thank you never please give us john stewart dc <laughs> john stewart uh is much better like john stewart green lantern the best um anything else on the uh, account uh, oh let me read two quick quotes on accountability um uh, from our chat, Miss Axel says, um, "Yeah, Miss Axel, heroism is subjective. You can't please them all. However, I love the idea of heroes being accountable to their community, and I, I think that yeah, I think that's something we're all kind of because even as I was saying what I was saying about being accountable to heroes, I think you do get the problem there of those heroes are it can become the echo chamber, you know. And I think in police we certainly see that of if you're only accountable to the others like you. Um, and uh, my wins guide you writes." So that brings the question of how to unify the populace enough to actually get something like an overnight committee to actually speak and protect the will of the community. It is definitely not an easy problem to solve. Um, Ranked choice voting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's, exactly. you, you joke, but uh, this whole thing about community accountability reflects like superheroes as elected officials. They're, they're sort of, in that case, taking a, the place of an elected official um, in that if we wanted them answerable to the community, well, what puts them into power in the first place? Yeah. And it has to be the will of the people in order for... Because, like, what if Metropolis doesn't want Superman? Uh, in most stories I've read where that's a thing that happens, Superman dips. He's like, okay, I don't want to be... I don't want to be, you know, acting in a place where I'm not wanted. Superman holds himself accountable to the community of Metropolis uh, and vice versa. Right. And, that's because but, uh, Clark that did not happen. grow up as a billionaire. Bruce would never yes. do that because he's entitled. Yeah. In fact, Gotham has multiple times rejected Batman openly. Please leave. And he's been like, no, you need me. No. Well, and to me, that's where Batman is to me the example. I mean, Alfred sort of holds him accountable barely, uh, but in such yeah. an enabling way. Like Batman to me is very much the, I know right. And so if I think I know right, you know, I'm going to be a tree and I'm going to plant myself here. And, and and not listen. Um, in fairness, almost everybody else in Gotham is horrible. <laughs> just, just, just yeah. Because they're paid to be there. 80% supervillain. Yeah. So, so let me finish up the accountability conversation with one quick question. And this we're just going to settle with a, a, a show of hands. Um, and it's the uh, question that started the heart and soul of this, ep- of this podcast, though we've never actually done an episode on it. And maybe we will one day. But uh, show of hands... Team Tony or Team Cap? So let's start. Team Tony. Team Cap. The people have spoken. Well done. I, I will I, say. You, you should probably Tony's... narrate that for people who are listening and not watching. Yeah. Uh, okay. Right, so, right, so for, for those who are watching, um, for those who are listening, uh, everybody except Paul was Team Tony and and then Paul was Team Cap. And I will also ask yeah. anyone of the, the listeners on chat to vote as well. Uh, Paul, you want to say a quick thing and then we'll move on. 
Yeah, I think Tony's completely right to be on Team Tony. I mean, that dude needs some hardcore oversight. Um, you know, I mean, he's got this, you know, this this technology. I mean, he, he created Ultron. Like, he's a threat. He's a threat to the world. Like, Cap is a guy who can run really fast and, like, jump out of ships, like, like an airplane or something and, and dive, he, he you know. He throws a shield so well. He's very, the best at throwing a shield. Best, he'd be the best. Yeah, but he's also an American shield, no military presence who's not interested in respecting other countries. Yeah. Like said, who don't necessarily want the American military. Respecting the American <laughs> like... military because the American military shouldn't really be respected. And, I mean, like, <sighs> I understand the point of of team team cat but like ultimately in in the context of the movie particularly like they're going to be accountable to who they're going to be going out doing missions for like the u.s secretary of state or secretary of defense i forget which like which very recently like this u.s organization shield turned out to basically be completely infiltrated by hydra no i don't think the sokovia accords as constituted are really a legitimate answer i think they're a Band-Aid that's supposed to be say It's just a way of the U.S. government through its control of the U.N. to get their hand on the hands on the Avengers. And do I think heroes need oversight? I think they absolutely need accountability. I think after they've done whatever they've done, they need accountability. I completely agree that they should be accountable to the community they serve. Ultimately, I think Cap should serve Earth, basically. Um, although after that, it's like it's not even just Earth, right? Because there's, you know intergalactic threats the things that are going on like i think having a strike team that's run by the u.s government doesn't really fix the problem i agree that there's a problem yeah um, well this is why I think as i said what episode. we needed was civil war two hours of bureaucratic wrangling to figure yes. it all out yes um let me though shift this to a uh, a different topic and this is getting a little more meta about uh comics in gen about these movies in general um and i'm going to say that we're uh, we're going to talk about representation and i i want to Start out by noting that I think um, we want comic book movies to have more representation. We want stories to have more representation. And I certainly want to you know, acknowledge that I want the, this podcast to have more representation. I have five wonderful guests here, who all of whom, uh, including myself, are white. Uh, and then obviously somewhat limits some of the, the voices that we have. And I think that's a, uh, an important thing to say. And I want to just acknowledge that one of my goals for the next hundred episodes is really going to be to try and change that somewhat. Um, so with that in mind, this is a question that comes somewhat from uh, Sherman Smith and somewhat also from a question Paul Hoppy raised, which is, um, what do you see in terms of areas where these stories, especially in TV and movies, are getting better in terms of representation? And where are the areas where you think we're really lagging behind and that we really need to, like, this industry really needs to be doing a lot more of in terms of representation? I should say probably the, all, the answer to which it should be doing more of is all of them. None of them is enough yet. But where do we well, – by, by, by the actual numbers, the Latino community is very, very underrepresented. Um, I, I was, I was, I, I've been doing a ton of research into racial statistics or whatever. And as a person that does entertainment, I was curious about the numbers of like – so like they did a big analysis. And it's, it's actually strange. The black community – Black actors are actually almost and in lead roles and um, supporting other roles. They're almost exactly they're almost represented by by capita in the, in America. Which of course we export our culture everywhere, so maybe it should be more than America. But the Latino community is like something like seven percent of characters, and they're like seventeen percent 
of our population in America. So the Latino community is like really, really underrepresented. Um, and even other smaller communities are getting a lot more representation, but it's really strange. And I think it has something to do with, I don't know. I think it has something to do with the assimilation aspect and the fact that like Latino communities sometimes still consume media from other Latino countries. And there's a lot more first generation immigrants here, but I'm not even sure. It's very strange to me though. I, yeah, I, I would enjoy if we could divorce, like, if we as a culture could divorce the idea that from our brains that the person on screen that I need to be identifying with needs to look at all like me. Um, my favorite Marvel movie still to date is Captain Marvel. Um, she doesn't look like me, so yeah. like it, it. It's just it's it's something that has been pervasive, and there are people pushing against it that's that's less on it's still somewhat on hollywood because they're the ones saying oh we can't sell these movies because people aren't going to watch them because they don't want to see these leading characters um but it's also sort of on each and every one of us to challenge those ideas when we see uh someone saying well i just i didn't understand the character or they were bland or one-dimensional or they didn't have an arc uh, these are all things that I have heard people criticizing, specifically Captain Marvel for that I flagrantly disagree oh, I'll t- with. I'll talk about that with Captain Marvel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we also, I think also we have to interrogate that sort of received wisdom or that, that you know, there, we hear from Hollywood and we hear from people defending Hollywood's practices, like we have to have only white straight men in our movies because that's all anybody will go to see. Uh, how much money do the Fast and the Furious movies make? How much money mm-hmm. did Black Panther make? Like, it's, it's mm-hmm. literally not true. If you look at box office returns, it's absolutely completely not true. And then you hear like, oh, well, we can't, you can't have uh, any, like, there was the whole thing where the um, Endgame was supposed to have the first gay character in Marvel movies, and it was like some guy in a support group going like, then my boyfriend died. Like, great, representation, wonderful oh, well, we can't have anything more than that because it's banned in China. Well, Brad Pitt is banned in China and they still make movies with him. So <laughs> right, right. none of this, like all and of And they these... release different versions to different places. Like there's an extra five minutes in Iron Man 3 with like a Chinese doctor for the, the Chinese version. Yeah, it's Brad, just excuses. Brad Pitt is banned in China? Yeah, I forget what movie he did. Or I think he said something about Tibet and they didn't like, like Tibet. Tibet. So he, he made, likely he made one of those White Savior meets the Dalai Lama movies. Yeah. But like, I think we have to, we have to interrogate that sort of idea. Even, even if it was true, it doesn't mean that it is ethical to Mm -hmm. obey that received wisdom, but it's also not true. It's also just demonstrably false. Yeah. Yeah. Scoreboard. Um, Well, in, in terms of representation, um, one thing that also should be part of the conversation is not just representation of what we see on the screen, but representation of who is writing those stories and representation in who is making the decisions of which stories get made. Right. Um, because I, I, we're going to keep running into that problem of people in power who say, well, I don't think this has an arc, or who say, but I'm pretty sure that black people don't watch TV or whatever, like if they are the people in power who are allocating the money to decide what gets made and what doesn't, then we don't see that change. And I think most of the the media that we've described is like, this is something that people have a strong reaction to and feeling represented, whether it's Captain Marvel or Black Panther or Luke Cage, is media where the team behind it, the team who masterminded it and who wrote it, 
are from the community that it's about. And I think that that has to be a, like a really like it, that that has to happen more right. in order for all of the additional changes to also happen. And that's that's also an issue with systemic uh, racism, systemic marginalization uh, in our culture, because in order to get into those kinds of positions to be able to make those movies, you have to break barriers already. There, there are barriers in place where it's just harder for you to become a writer, a director, a producer in Hollywood if you don't fit a particular mold. And I don't think I need to spell out for anybody here what that mold is, but it looks a little like this. Yeah. Miss uh, <laughs> Axel, uh, one of the people on the, the chat uh, wrote in uh, something, and I, I hadn't really thought about this, but, but it's a very interesting point. Uh, that film schools are often where a lot of this starts because if they're yeah. film, a lot of the professors there are men who have, as, as you said, Jessica, that received wisdom. And so it just keeps getting passed on of like, you know, an action movie is Captain America, Captain America, a action movie for women is Captain Marvel, you know, that it's not the default yeah. in that same way. Um, as and, you said, we're seeing well, and it's also, um, so just, I was just going to add to that. If a female led, uh, genre film or action film, does not succeed first of all like it has to fight to get made it has to fight to get released with the same kind of push that a uh, male-led action film does and i'm talking about things like um uh the all-female ghostbusters um mm -hmm. birds of prey and then if it doesn't even if it does well financially if it doesn't do better than any movie has ever done before then it's called a failure right mm-hmm there's no room to it be is, a mid-level, good-profit yeah. popcorn movie. Um, the standard, exactly. the, the, the barrier you have to break is here, where the bar for any stock media, which is already a terrible and loaded term to use, is down here. It's, it's yeah. ridiculous. Um, uh, but that's the systemic, right? I'll say one thing also on representation, and this is purely from my, my own perspective, but I think it's interesting given the conversation we were having before about how much do these movies need, you know, the punch em up fight? Um, for me, I think one of the most complicated forms of representation then is that of disabled folk, um, because so much of this is about the perfection of the physical form and the ability to do crazy physical things. And I know that for me as a disabled person, uh, for our, our listeners who don't know, I spend a lot of my life in a wheelchair because I have a prosthetic leg. Um, there's almost something very frustrating there because I'm, I'm almost never going to see myself on screen. And when I do, it's almost always someone who whether because toxic waste got dumped and so he has super hearing to compensate for his blindness or the force allows Yoda to forget that he has a cane and bounce around like a force-wielding <laughs> pinball or whatever it is, like, we very rarely get superheroes who are actually able to be superheroes and be disabled, not either superheroes in spite of their disability or even more superheroes who use their superpower to not be disabled. Um, and I know I mean, professor, professor X is one, but as we've mentioned, he's terrifying. Well, yes, like, oh, also, yeah. You don't want to look up and be like, Oh, I want to oh. be more like that guy. Yeah, I mean, we had Oracle for a while, but now she's back. Oracle's being Batgirl. So good. Yeah. yeah. And we haven't seen other than like a couple animated shows. We've never really seen Oracle on and Oracle's never been in any big budget uh, movie. Has oh, she? She, she had a show. Yeah. Birds of prey. Uh, it was in like 2004 and it was terrible. Okay. Mm. Well, uh, I, I hope I hope she'll be in the next Birds of Prey movie because that that first one was fantastic. Yes, um, but with no love scene with Bruce Wayne ever, ever, ever. Um, <laughs> so um, let me let me time check, folks. It's a little after seven thirty. Um, we've got a couple more questions we could go through, or, or do folks want to uh, start wrapping up right now? Where are folks on time ability? Oh, time. 
Okay. I'm good. Yeah, I can you, I can do another got, 20 minutes or so. Yeah, you got about that much out of me, and then I literally turn into a pumpkin, and that has to happen off camera to keep the magic alive. There you go. Everybody. There you go. Yeah, we don't want any vulgar. Uh, Mr. Carroll, we can start having a camera's uh, malfunction. Um, Ask a yeah, question. So, so for some reason I've got someone doing doing yard work right outside my room, so that's why I've been quiet. I had to turn my mic down because there's someone going right outside my window. No problem. So Susan Ellis Norris also asked, what's the relationship between heroes and cops? And I think we kind of addressed that somewhat. So let me just skip to another one I wanted to ask, which is what's the line between a hero and a vigilante? And the next question is going to be who's the villains you agree with? But let's start just with this one. Like, where do you draw the line where someone is supposed to be being a hero, but or or I guess what is the line to you when someone is no longer being a hero? And I I think of it as vigilante is sort of what they cross into, but if you have a different framework, what's that framework? I definitely would not necessarily like I I see where you're coming from with that, and I'm like, oh, that definition makes sense. I would define the difference as having to do with a whether they're sanctioned and b uh their power level because mm. Superman is technically a vigilante. Like nobody told him he could do anything that he's doing. He's just doing it because he can, but nobody mm. would call him that because he, he's so nice and he flies. Whereas the mayor thank him like yeah, on constant, the reg. So yeah, like, basically he's the key to the city. He, <laughs> usually he's, he's sanctioned or at least unofficially sanctioned, but technically he is a vigilante because he is not in fact employed by the state in any way. Right. Um, but I, I don't think anybody would call him that, whereas somebody like Daredevil, definitely a vigilante. And then Batman depends on the story. So I think right. for me, it's a genre classification mm. rather than the ethics of their actions. Right. Would, would a better way to describe it be the difference between justice and vengeance? Because I guess that might be more what I'm going for. For me, or at maybe least... maybe hero versus anti-hero? That's fair. Because like, for me, I think Frank Castle, especially in the Punisher Netflix TV show, I find an incredibly compelling character, if some major writing problems in, in season two especially. But to me, somewhat in season one, but especially by season two, I can't see him as a hero anymore. In large part no. because to me, I see him as someone who's out for – like he has been personally hurt and he wants to have revenge on them rather than a, a justice idea of – I want to prevent this happening to other people in the same way. Um, that's where I kind of draw the line. But for others, what, where would you draw the line of when does someone stop being a hero and start becoming just an anti-hero or maybe a villain or, or however you define it? I think motivation matters a lot. Um, if, it's, if, if their motivation is trying to make the world a better place, more often for me, they either fall under definitely a hero or definitely a villain depending on their angle of approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and very rarely does somebody who's trying to make the world a better place or trying to improve some circumstance actually end up in that, as, as you're, as justified in the uh, anti-hero realm, which I think it's a, that, that, uh, what's the word I want to use? The hero, anti-hero, villain. Spectrum. Trichotomy uh, <laughs> is... <laughs> Tracheotomy? No, that's when you... No, okay. <laughs> Troika? Uh, tri- Troika? Uh, spectrum. <laughs> we'll spectrum. Move on. Anyway, so um, that... Uh, they very rarely fall in the anti-hero line because, to me, the anti-hero, where they, where they come out, where it is clearly more that is when it is... It's a more personal motivation. So a lot of early incarnations of Batman in his own stories, 
he sort of starts in sort of more of that anti-hero like I'm doing this because my parents got killed or or something along those lines right I'm doing this because I have some unresolved issues about crime and how it relates to me personally uh, rather than like actually trying to make systemic changes um, and so when their motivation is because of something they personally want I find that their their actions and that motivation tend to make them feel more like that anti-hero character and that's where Frank Castle basically lines up throughout Punisher is he's definitely about his own agenda and what he wants out of it right. I think for me that becomes very important because it goes to that other question of when it's about your vengeance and your own agenda any sense of what the community you're in theory protecting wants goes right out the window it's hard though because I I I don't see Punisher that much different than Batman, it, with the exception of of course one kills and one doesn't. Gun, like from from <laughs> a, right right like one kills and one doesn't. <laughs> from a motivational so standpoint, right now, I'm really happy about it. <laughs> from, from a motivational standpoint, yeah, I agree. Go yeah, on, that, that's what I'm getting at. Sorry, yeah. you're you're talking about motivation and you're talking yeah. about how uh, he has a personal motivation. I just think that I don't think that Frank Castle's out for vengeance. I think. He is also trying to destroy the system uh, and, and the gr- – but he's more about a specific group of people. He's not just trying to fight crime, mm-hmm. but he is trying – this horrible thing happened to him, and he wants to bring the p- down the people that did it. So from a motivational standpoint, it's very similar to Batman. My parents died. I don't want that to happen to anyone else. It would be nice if he like – if in the Punisher show we saw some evidence of other things they were doing and he's trying to stop, yeah. that would be kind of nice. Uh, but other – because it does – come off as just purely vengeance, which maybe it is. Maybe it is. Yeah, I mean, I think also if you look at his name, there's... Yeah, uh, <laughs> a, yeah Like, his fair. motivation is the right mentor, there in it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't... The bridge I don't, builder. I don't disagree with you. I think it also depends on where they are in their stories. Um, like, yep. Frank definitely moves from I am going to avenge my family to oh, I'll just kill all the criminals because they should yeah. be killed. If nothing else, it makes me go back to that question of accountability and stuff like that. I would love to see a world in which there's a Justice League, there's an Avengers, whatever it is. But the first day you show up and say, hello, I have this incredible power, or I'm really good with a bow and arrow, or I have lots of money. I would like to go kill bad guys, please. The first thing they say is, okay, tell us about your trauma that caused you to be here. Now please go sit down with this licensed team of therapists, talk about your trauma, when you have come to a point of resolution and you're not actively projecting your trauma on every person you meet, then we can give you your license to go out and be a hero. Because <laughs> I think that's kind of where I come from in a lot is when it's – Punisher to me is the best example of this, but it's where the I, – I am still so dealing with that trauma and whatever it is. And it doesn't always have to be trauma. And I'm, I mean, I myself am someone who dealt with trauma. I'm not going out and trying to kill the people who did it. Lots of people have trauma and don't go through any of this stuff. But – because that's such a, a trope in these stories, it does often seem like a lot of what's happening is people are taking unresolved, unprocessed issues and trying to punch their way to mental health, which just seems like a disaster on eight different levels. You've summed up 80 years that... of Batman. 
that, that that's that'll be the title of my next self-help book punch your way to uh <laughs> to a better health. life and a to better you life. punch your way to a better you ship it has anyone, it'll be a martial arts textbook has anyone ever written the fan not i don't want a fanfic like erotic but just the fan fiction of bruce wayne sits down with psych with psychiatrist harleen quinzel I think probably the regular and the erotic exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm sure all of That'd be such an interesting take. Anyway, um, anything else on the hero side of it? I, I do think it's kind of subjective. I mean, I think most characters are the hero of their own story. And right. it's like, what do you think about what they're trying to do? What do you think about how they're going about doing it? Like, you can kind of decide a lot of the time whether you think someone's a hero or not. I think a lot of heroes, not so much heroes, and some villains, maybe not so much villains, but um, yeah, I don't know. yeah. Light on examples there, but I'm sure everybody. Can. It's be- it's honestly, I think it's because it's so pervasive that thinking of like an iconic example is mm-hmm. difficult because you could pull a hero out of a hat and probably find an example. Right. right. Well, it's very pervasive. And then I guess gets to the, the, the last big question I want to ask is, um, who are the villains you agree with sometimes? Who are the villains who were you felt like uh, maybe on some level ethically they either could have been more of a hero or, or you, you at least see where they're coming from in a way that makes it hard for you to say like, oh, that person's terrible. Poison Ivy. Yeah? Say more. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're destroying <laughs> the planet. She's right. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, what more do you have? <laughs> Basically, all of the eco-terrorist villains who are just right, yeah. but then, like, it's like, well, but just, how about you don't kill everybody? Yeah. I don't know, we Thanos, know. but he was only half right. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Thanos was just bad at math, is the problem. And good night, everybody. He really didn't have it worked out in terms of the math. He's like, it. eh, it's probably 50% full of the lever. Yeah. Uh, um, oh God, I had a, I had one, and then you made that sorry, very sorry good that. joke, sorry. and then, uh, oh, um, this is going to upset at least one other person on this call. Um, Alfred Bester is a villain I find myself actually agreeing with more than uh, perhaps I would like. He's because I assume many in our audience are making the very confused faces that at least two people on camera are currently make. Uh, this is the uh, <laughs> head of the uh, organization of telepaths in the in the television show Babylon Five, oh. no, and a, where he's a very influential yeah, uh, member where, of the yeah. just to give the thirty seconds. Basically, this is a world in which. Um, because people are so scared of tele, kind of actually like the X Men world and what you were saying, Jessica, about them being oppressed, because everyone is so scared about telepaths having the power to just take over the world, they wind up being actually very restricted and very, very oppressed. And Bester is the sort of lovable villain who is using telepathic powers in ways to fight for. The- He's very much a Magneto figure, I think. And that was what, yeah. exactly what I was going to say. Is you can you could shorthand Bester as Magneto and make the exact same points that I'm going to be making, only with a framework a lot more people would understand, I think. Um, but to me, Bester, because he was portrayed by Walter Koenig, has a special place in my heart too. Yeah. Uh, Walter Koenig being check off nice. for Star Trek fans. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, a Killmonger came up earlier. I think he's another. I mean, all of these characters. I don't think. Nobody's like, yep, they should be allowed to continue doing exactly what they're doing. But they all raise valid points. Um, But I think also it speaks to a larger problem with the genre where so often the motivation for a villain is that they are 
hurt or traumatized or disenfranchised in some way. I mean, how many of them are mentally ill? How many of them have been like victims of often of, you know, the, the collateral damage of what a hero does. And then they, you know, look at whatever random object is lying next to them. And they're like, that's my theme. I'm a villain now. (laughs) And it creates this, you know, this world where we have these, white straight cis male billionaires beating up marginalized victims of trauma if we just maybe had bruce wayne spend 10 million dollars on safety at chemical plants how much better <laughs> no, would the city of gotham be like just be put some stuff. fencing over the vats you know like <laughs> but, but then ooh. i think he'd be cutting into his own profits from the definitely wayne enterprises owned chemical facilities yeah. <laughs> also true Look, billionaire. So, the ethical billionaire doesn't exist, is what yeah. I'm saying. But uh, Jessica, I think you make a very good point there. That um, a lot of times it seems the the villains are it's either a people who where we utterly agree with their goal, we just maybe don't agree with their method, or they are someone who is forced into a position of desperation by incredibly terrible circumstances. That you know, um, if the circumstances were different, maybe they wouldn't have to do that. You know, if better health care existed in Gotham. Maybe there isn't a Mr. Freeze, you know, let alone like 10 million other different levels of, of, of bad guys and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think that, that's another very interesting take on villains where you look at like, what's the circumstance that made this person feel like they have to do what they have to do? I think um, the comic Squirrel Girl, which recently ended, actually interrogates this brilliantly because Squirrel Girl's first response to a villain tearing up the city is always to go, hey, what's going on? Like, why are you so upset that you feel that you need to do this? And most of the time they're like, oh, because of this. And she's like, all right, we can solve that problem. Yeah. And then the problem is solved. And also there are squirrels. Like, what more could you want? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for me, changing tone a little bit, I forgot every villain I had ever heard of um, when this question was asked. And so I Googled list of villains. (laughs) And the one that struck me as the most sympathetic uh, on the, the list that I found was the Grinch. Um, I like it. And Go that's on. a joke answer, but also it's not a joke answer because as somebody who doesn't celebrate Christmas, uh, the entirety of November and December are extremely excruciating. That's very fair. And I would like to be able to be grumpy and not feel like there is this thing that I am being told I am wrong for not wanting to participate in. And maybe people could stop singing Christmas carols at me. Uh, and so, joking, but not really joking, I find the Grinch very sympathetic. And I think that there are things that could be... Y- you could take a deeper look at that in terms of our, our culture's relationship to Christianity and Christian hegemony and non-Christian people maybe having a rough time with some of that, uh, me included. But also, I thought it was funny. Well, I, I think that's a great point, too, because I think part of this is sometimes I think the the writer is very intentional about saying we want you to think this villain has a point with like Magneto or Killmonger. Yeah. But sometimes I think, I, I don't think, you know, um, the writers there had any intention. I think, you know, I'm going to sound like a complete, like I was never had a child. <laughs> That's a Dr. Seuss story, right? Dr. Yeah. Seuss, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't think the intention was supposed to be to make the Grinch sympathetic, but the idea that like now people, certainly not in the even more Christianized like cartoons or um, Jim Carrey movie that was made and stuff like that. But I could very much see how someone – I think there are definitely situations of villains where I think they're not intended to be written as sympathetic. But someone who is not from the 
sort of uber culture that that writing comes out of can very much see them as that. Um, I think there's also um, a trend, like villains are often visually othered, which is absolutely the case with the Grinch and is expanded on quite a lot uh, in the live action movie, which I've seen many times because my little sister was in love with it when Mm. she was a child. (laughs) So thanks for that, sis. Um, But also, this is more of a Disney movie thing than a superhero thing, but it's absolutely still a thing in superhero universes. Um, I have seen many um, LGBTQ people saying that they relate to Disney villains because they are queer-coded. And that, again, Mm -hmm. absolutely a thing with uh, comic book supervillains, particularly Batman villains. But like when the only way that you see your expression of yourself on screen or on the page is as a villain because that's the axis that's used to other you, then you're going to find those villains sympathetic, even if their actions are, you know, killing Mufasa or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that actually, like, one of the people, one of the other people I was thinking of with this was actually Scorpia from She-Ra, who we don't see uh, the other princesses saying, no, you're a monster, but she's been grown up being told people will see you as a monster because she's a giant scorpion lady. And she's actually, like, the friendliest and nicest person in in the world, and she's great. And I can very much understand why she assumed that she would be unwelcome with other princesses. Right. Because she is looked at as monstrous, even though she's super, super nice. Yeah. And gives the best hugs. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I really want to say, I, I, to me, like, Shira, and also the show that I think in many ways is sort of the the straight version of it, uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender. Like, to me, both of those shows do such a good job of complicating the question of who is a hero, who is a villain, um, including with two of the best redemption stories of villains that I've ever seen um, in, in each of those. Um, and in the last comments on villains, before I want to kind of throw... The, uh, oh, actually, I was uh, saying my own... Um, and I'm going to preface, this is 100% from the Clone Wars TV show and has nothing to do with the movies. Mm. The villain I've been finding myself a lot more kind of having sympathy for is Anakin Skywalker. Because in the Clone Wars TV show, what they go much more into is a boy of 10 years old who is taken from his mother by a group that has the power to do anything in the world but never thinks that buying his mother out of slavery might be a good idea is taken away from any kind of human connection and then when he actually falls in love with someone in in the movie a horribly stalkerish you know Anakin Skywalker in the movie should be wearing a fedora Problematic. I mean he's, he's he is the ultimate fuckboy but in the Clone Wars TV show I feel like they give him so much more depth they give him so much more interest and they show him actually respecting Padme in ways that are really nice but then also he just becomes this absolute pawn in the conflict between the Jedi and and the uh, and Palpatine, with all the problems of the Jedi being so arrogant and so hubristic, and Palpatine being the only one who actually pays any attention to him, that by the time I get to the end of it, I am so sympathetic to why he feels like Palpatine is the only one who cares about him and is the only family he has, and and that he wants to protect that. Um, and again, it's a thing where like anyone who hasn't seen the Clone Wars and has just seen Hayden Christensen is looking at me like I have three heads, I'm sure. Um, but but I do think that at least in the show, um, they make him such an interesting... Not because he's, like, you believe in his cause, but because you see how awfully he is treated, and you sort of understand, like, in his situation, I can see why he would make that choice. 
Yeah. One that I thought of. Oh, sorry. I was Go just going to say mine, if that's okay. Uh, did, you, did you guys watch Watchmen? I don't want to ruin, spoil it. But I've read the graphic novel and seen the not very good movie adaptation. Right. I'm talking about the new show. Yeah, I've not seen the new show. The person they end up fighting in well, the end. Ask, hold on a second. Are you all planning to watch I the find... TV show anytime soon? Go for it. Okay. Well, I, I, can, I can even say it without spoiling for those who ha- have seen it. The person they end up villainizing in the end of that show, I never, she just never did anything villainous. Just like, she just is someone that, she's a power seeker, I guess. But like, her ideas are all good. And they just, if the characters are like, anyone with that much power, we need to stop them. Even though she's trying to do all good things with the power. Yeah. So that's an interesting villain. This is a very different uh piece of media but that just makes me think of Sharpay Evans from High School Musical who was right was also on the list of villains that I found Mm -hmm. and And I almost said Sharpay but I thought I had more (laughs) to say about the Grinch that would be relevant justice for (laughs) Sharpay I will confess that's not one I've seen but I I, 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 I hope a lot of our fans have before we wrap up I just wanted everyone to uh to just process the fact that Matthew Westfox, who created the Superhero Ethics podcast, uh, has now said that uh, child murderer is someone he identifies with. So. <laughs> he killed <laughs> the younglings, Matthew. <laughs> you know, I've said a couple times I'm Other not really good with kids. different because <laughs> of the spelling. <laughs> I'm saying that I understand why he yes, steps I... off the edge. Once he steps off the edge and falls into the pit of the dark side, yes, he's totally wrong. I get it. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's nobody else in here is familiar with it. There's a property I've been consuming again, like for, for the second or third time recently, where there's another example like this. It, it's a, it's you get to see the character's entire backstory, and it's incredibly tragic and it's heartbreaking. And fundamentally, all they want is they want the tr- they want the truth to be acknowledged. Right? That's all they're after. But in order to do that they feel they need to kill an entire village of people to make the point. Yeah. And it's like, it's so hard not to at least empathize with their, like all they really, all you really want is for people to acknowledge that this is the reality of the situation and no one is willing to do it. Everyone's shutting you down. And, you know, she's had a, a rough go of it. She, she started out really um, as an orphan in a bad place. And it's just like this building, building, building trauma you understand exactly where she's coming from, and it's just that it's that last step. It's when she ignites her lightsaber in front of a bunch of children that you're like, maybe not. It's not. It, I'm being metaphorical. This is not another Jedi story, but yeah. no, I think it's true. Uh, Miss Excel in the chat writes, um, "The best villains are the ones you can relate to," <clears throat> and I think that's also true because I think like, you know, Palpatine. You keep on the Star Wars thing. Palpatine is the most mustache twirler of mustache twirlers that's ever twirled a mustache. Like. All he wants is ultimate power, and he actually shouts out those words in a movie. It's awful. I have never felt that desire, but I certainly like, to me, Clone Wars Anakin is someone I can relate to. You know, um, Killmonger is, I haven't dealt with his particular set of oppressions, but the idea of, like, you know, I mean, the Magneto Professor X story was written at a time when most people were like, yeah, Martin Luther King good, Malcolm X bad. As I think for a lot of us, certainly myself, that opinion has shifted it, it's very hard not to see Magneto in a much more sympathetic light. Um, and same with a lot of these kind of things. Because I think it's, it's again, it's the... Killmonger, to me, is another great example. Because Killmonger's a villain where I can say, given what he saw of how terrible things can be without stronger social control, 
yeah, I get why you would want that. And I, I can see why that would be tempting, as horrible and wrong as it is. I actually uh, disagree a bit with the idea that the best villains are the ones you can relate to. Um, they are uh, definitely, I think, the most compelling to watch. But I think from uh, if we're looking at these stories for ethical guidance, like... I can think of some people uh, in power right now who might just yell, all I want is ultimate power. Like, That's I don't funny. relate to Lex Luthor at all, yeah. but although he is he is sympathetic in Smallville, I would say. But <laughs> in general, I don't relate to Lex Luthor at all. But I certainly see a lot of Lex Luthers in the real world. And I think that, like, we don't want to think that people could be that that selfish, that cruel, that greedy, that hurtful, that bigoted without them having like a really sympathetic reason where we can understand why they would do that. Um, but it, it is reality, which I guess that's is fair. terrifying. And, and I guess there's a need for both because I think there's a need for both of the, the mustache twirler, but also the, that person doesn't even realize their own bias. And how does that make me realize how I don't see my own bias? You know, if I'm, I don't think I could be like Luther, but could I be you know, poison ivy or someone. Um, now, I know Jacob is in imminent danger of yes. pumpkining, oh, in his own yeah. words. Uh, so I want to kind of um, give everyone a chance to, uh, and I, I, I kind of cut that last discussion off, which I apologize for. So I want to do this. I want to give everyone a chance, starting with Jacob, to give kind of their closing words. And I want that to be both, if you have any more comments on any of the debates we've been having, including the one I just had to cut off a little bit. Um, but also, the last question is... Um, What's a way in which your views of justice or ethics or morality or any of this have been, if not like 180 degree changed, but at least like one of these stories is kind of part of why you're like, yeah, I, I, I get this issue now more or I, I think about this this way because of this story that I saw when I was a kid. Um, so, Jacob, take it away. Um, interestingly, uh, one of the one of the pieces of media I consumed a while back. Uh, got me to thinking about the the fact that all of our media uses violence to have our heroes solve their problems in ways... I don't think this was... like It doesn't feel intentional, but it was, believe it or not, watching uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer got me to thinking about that because the villains in that piece are um, almost always like categorically monsters in some way, like literal monsters in some way. And yet, when there are villains that are actual human beings, the heroes take a step back and go, well, we can't just punch their face off because this is this is a person. Um, and then the time where they actually confront that and challenge that um, is in a season where one of them crosses that line and ends up being the principal villain of the piece as a result. And that actually, because so much of our media is... Uh, up till that point in my upbringing including children's media is good guys can kill bad guys and it's fine um and it was a bad guy that was killed but it was still not okay um that was formative i would say in me reevaluating the use of violence as a means of conflict resolution awesome i think that was answering your question it was thank you so much jacob thank you so much for me to co-host and being a regular guest you've been a great part of this hundred episodes and if you need to disappear right now go ahead yeah, let's not have me show up as orange on this. Uh, <laughs> okay. Peace out. Uh, good night. Take care. Oh, good night. Uh, so, Jess, do you want to go next? Especially because I think I, I unfortunately did kind of cut you off a little bit. Uh, if you had any response. No, no, you're fine. Um, can you repeat the question? <laughs> sure. Um, 
How has one of these stories affected your understanding of ethics or morals or justice or uh, either in general or on a specific issue? I mean, I think uh, the, the, the sort of sad answer is that I think I learn more from where I see the shortcomings in superhero media, especially um, because I read a lot of the comics and they're, they're sort of cranked out really fast and don't interrogate things as deeply as sometimes some of the larger multimedia properties do. Um, it makes me think like, why do I have a problem with this? Why does this ring hollow to me or fall flat? Um, but in sort of a broader macro sense, I guess, and I feel like I've said this on previous episodes, um, but one of the reasons that I like Superman as a character is because to me, um, he represents the, uh, the power in a seemingly nondescript person that you can look like just an ordinary person and you can, you actually have the capacity to do great good, which comes back to the whole with great power comes great responsibility. But the idea that we all have great power um, and that we do have that, that moral imperative to do something with it um, is why that character continues to resonate with me. And I think continues to resonate with, people in general yeah so i wish they did a better job with it sometimes <laughs> i can understand that I, I will say from my understanding especially when people say what they want to see more of i don't think clark kent is supposed to look like a regular person <laughs> i always thought he was supposed to look kind of <laughs> like a um prime specimen of of masculine but with glasses no um, but with glasses the glasses just the glasses so, yeah. so the so, yes he looks ridiculously like he looks like a space god and then you put glasses on which are supposed to be the ultimate nerd symbol and they cancel each other out to perfect average there you go there you go i like it i like it uh mr carroll when do you go next sorry uh sorry for the crazy noise in the background um that's what i've been muting this whole time uh for me it's star trek for me it's all about um the idea of Seeking out new life and new civilizations, that whole idea for me is about recognizing more people as more beings as people. And I'm sorry, Jacob's gone because I'm trying, I'm working on it with robots, <laughs> but um, recognizing, uh, you know, you see yourself and someone else was talking about um, losing the idea of representation as an idea or the idea of that something on screen has to look like you. Um, but like every th that's Star Trek all over. It's like every story is a different kind of strange being and they have to realize this strange being it, that is so loud. I'm sorry. Is a person to is, is a being worth that is valuable and has its own perspective. And then they try to do that. So doing that in the real world is a, is a challenge because I'm, I don't agree that, um, the people at the top or people in power even right now are pure monsters. Like, I think that they are human beings with their own motivations and their own, um, problems. And some of them do horrible things that need to be stopped. But I think that by calling them monsters separates us from them in a way that doesn't allow us to deal with them in properly. Like, I think we need to realize they're just people with their own motivations. And how can we, how can we, um, come together and find a common ground like I think that that's really important and I, and I know that there are people in power right now that do horrible horrible things and I, I just yeah I so Star Trek is the thing that has 
grown me from the small Alabama conservative to seeing more of the world, the humanity and more of the world. But it's also the thing that's making me look back at those people that I left and go, I was that and I wasn't a monster. Like I, how can I talk to those people and how can I, how can I find their humanity and, you know, come together as a society, I guess. So Star Trek. And I'll just say, Matt, I'm going to turn myself down. As your podcasting colleague, uh, who has been consistently sort of pulling you to the left as much as I can over the last year or so. Um, <laughs> watching that journey, I think, has been really interesting. And, and when you and uh, your partner on the MCU cast very clearly sort of started a podcast recently by saying, whatever else we think, you know, this podcast is very much believing in, in Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. It, it, to me, made – it was a really beautiful moment of, like, both just that evolution but also just the idea of, like, what responsibility we have as podcasters to – not just talk about the cool fight scenes, but to talk about like why these stories matter and how they relate to co- the, the issues we talk about today. So yeah, and as as we said on that show, like it's just <laughs> we try to steer clear of politics on the MCU cast because it's a big broad tent of people talk, and we basically just talk about Marvel. We talk about ethical issues, but it's more about you know what's going to happen next, what character do we like, what are they doing? Uh, yeah, but um. You know, like we said on there, Black Lives Matter is not politics. It's civil rights. It's like we just have to. Yeah. So and and, and I was inspired by a lot of other shows, yours included. But um, a lot of shows were saying, you know, starting their shows that way. And I just realized, like, the cumulative effect of a lot of podcasts being willing to stand up and say that, like, I don't think it's a big deal that I did it, but I or that we did it. But like, I think it's a big deal that so many people in the media were turning around and saying, like, yeah. We all need to take a stand together, and that's, that makes an impact on someone, you know? Paul, what about for yourself? Um, yeah, I just want to say a comment about that, that I think um, there's a small number of people who have a lot of power in the world, and that's, that's actually very represented in superhero fiction. Um, but I think it's often easy to forget that a large number of people also have a large amount of power, even when each person individually... Uh, each company, each podcast, whatever, only as a small amount um, used collectively, it can be very powerful. Um, and those, you know, those moments in in, sh- in shows when like the heroes knock down or whatever, and then their community does kind of like rise up and they're like, hey, you know, you mess with Spider-Man, you mess with New York or like whatever it is, <laughs> you know, um, it, it really speaks to that, that the, you know, large amount of people have a large amount of power, even when they don't individually have that much power. Um, As far as uh, a show that had a a big effect on me in terms of sort of worldview, um, I don't know. So I'm going to say Daredevil, which is sort of, I kind of just want to talk about the representation thing. That was the question I asked, but never really got to answer. (laughs) But um, uh, one, you know, so there's, there's a bunch of areas of representation I'd like to see a lot more of. I mean, I'd like to see more Asian characters in, in shows um, and movies. Two thirds of the world is Asian. So I think, you know, and only like maybe a couple percent, a few percent of the United States. So I think the representation levels we see are very, maybe proportional to the United States, but not to the world as a whole. Um, I'd also like to see things representing people's nationality as being important to them or to their character. I think often we get nations like Sokovia or Wakanda or whatever, which I think sometimes there's a sense of trying to sort of sidestep that as an issue or as a, as a sort of facet of representation. And I understand why um, 
why that tact is taken, but I'd like to see more often just, you know, characters who they're from a place and that's relevant to the character. doesn't have to be the main focus of a show. Um, also, I'd like to see more like vegetarian and vegan characters where that's like relevant as opposed to just kind of like a throwaway or like a, a joke, you know? Um, but finally, this is like kind of weird for me as someone who's been atheist my whole life, kind of, I'd say anti-religion but not anti-people it's anyway that's that's something that i kind of spend time investigating sort of myself on um the show daredevil to me was the first time i've ever seen a character whose religion was very important to them was very important to the show and like i felt like i got it like i felt like it made sense you know i feel like matt murdoch's catholicism is an important part of Matt Murdock's character. It's an important part of the Daredevil show. And as someone who's often felt like religion is this kind of thing that I kind of don't really want to engage with in a lot of different ways, um, I felt it was very good to be able to engage with it in that way and see it as something that's positive in this character's identity, in their life, in the show. Um, and I just like to see more of that, you know, of all, all different aspects of uh, characters of all different religious backgrounds of you know explicitly atheist characters of all different things where like you know in the avengers there's like a throwaway line like you know oh he's a god and it's like well there's only i only know one god and he doesn't dress that way and to me that's sort of like i feel like most characters are kind of assumed to be sort of like american christian in some kind of generic way um but none of that is really it rarely feels relevant and when it does it feels it in a little bit kind of like a grinchy stole you know the grinch stole christmas kind of way where it's like that's just the default right? right and we're just supposed to um and so i definitely like to see more representation of that which i think is very hard i think if i were writing it it would be very hard for me to write it but i think it's important and i'd, I'd like to see more yeah. i think that's great and i just want to one thing i kept thinking about as you were saying that is how you're right we have sokovia we have wakanda but we also have Captain yeah. America, like right, it's exactly. okay for us to put someone from America. But we, yeah, we don't, yeah. we can't just have a character who's who's from Thailand, and that's an important part of who right. they are. Like you know, and I, I yeah. it's interesting there. Uh, Becky. Um. So for me, I'm actually going to go with Rogue One. Um. And the the intense feeling of hope. Um. Because I was not feeling a lot of hope when that movie came <laughs> out, and um, the idea that. Even the idea that it's worth, sometimes it is worth fighting and losing your life, which I am not super, I think it's a hard one for me to grapple with, but that there are things that are that level of importance, um, but also that that's not the end, that you can not know if things are going to turn out okay, or maybe have a sense that it's very unlikely that things will turn out okay, but still feel hope and still work towards making that hope a reality um, was something that I just found incredibly powerful in Rogue One. Um, and that meant a lot to me. Yeah. I can definitely see that. Yeah, I, I, I had a very similar feeling uh, watching that movie, especially when it came out. And, and as well as the idea that it's, um, you know, I love Luke Skywalker, but I never felt like I can go do what Luke Skywalker does. And the fact that the heroes of Rogue One never swing a lightsaber, have only the most basic, like, you know, one dot in, you know, like, very basic level of, um, you know, force usage. Like, they're 
they're ordinary people to an extent um, in Rogue One. I think that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just say my, mine is also coming from Star Wars. And in part, it's because it's the journey that I've been on with it. Um, I fell in love with Star Wars as a young kid because I grew up in a home where people had very strong emotions and where what I often saw, both in like the news I would read about like the Middle East, but also about like watching my family or my friends fight, was one person would get angry at another and thus not be able to hear what the other was saying because they would just be in that kind of red haze of anger and no conversation would actually happen. And so as a young person, the idea of, you know, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering and all that is the dark side was one that was incredibly powerful to me and really helped me to understand like the danger of hating your enemy and uh, of, of, you know, starting to see that you're, that your enemy is less than you are because then it can justify you to do terrible things to them. Um, And that continues to be a very important part, I think, of my moral character. But as I've grown up, I've also started to realize how that's a very male, white, you know, my logic is better than your emotion kind of attitude. And I know this is controversial and not all Star Wars fans agree with it. Part of why I love a lot of the animated shows and I think The Last Jedi is I feel like that they get it. Like so much of the more recent Star Wars that's not made by someone with two letters of, uh, as not made by J.J. Abrams, is that it gets that a philosophy of emotional rationality is always better than emotion doesn't work. And that it gets that sometimes you do need to hate your oppressor and that hating your oppressor is understandable and that, that for the non-oppressed to judge that is problematic. Um, and it's, I don't think the most recent Star Wars have said we're going to go all the way to the other end and say the Sith are right, but but that it, it problematizes it. And I have, throughout the last couple of years, but especially in the last couple of months, uh, after the murder of George Floyd and all this discussion of, you know, because anytime I'd hear someone say, oh, well, protests are fine, but once it turns violent, that's bad. I heard Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, I heard the, like, you know, if only those black people would stay, not go to the dark side. You know, and I think that's, it, it's interesting it's not like it's given me the, the, the answer, but I, my wrestling with my understanding of the force and my wrestling with my understanding of how to understand justice in the world today and how to deal with the fact that I do, I am incredibly angry at people who won't wear masks and I am incredibly angry at cops. And I, I don't want to just say I want to be rational, ignore those feelings. Uh, so for me, that all comes from star Wars. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a powerful thing. Um, just looking at the chat, we saw one more um, plus one for Star Trek. We also had uh, My Winds Guide You uh, saying I really enjoyed uh, – uh, yeah, I think I really enjoyed that movie uh, for the reason among many. I think they meant uh, Rogue One, which is awesome. Um, and, yeah, and I just want to um, give any, you any kind of last words you have before we close out. All right, well, thank you guys all so much. Thank you folks all so much. You've all been um, – such a big part of making this podcast what it was. Um, you all have been great guests. You have um, uh, helped me to grow a lot. Uh, sometimes you've pointed out some of the problems with the podcast, which I've been incredibly grateful for because it helped us sort of find where we needed to grow and stuff like that. So to you all, thank you so much for being a part of this. To the fans, um, to those of you who participated in the live chat uh, or just who are listening now on the podcast and uh, want to share your thoughts, please do. Um, I think all of us like talking. All of us like hearing our own thoughts. But um, what I love is these conversations. And I, every time a listener writes in, every time we get Facebook comments or Twitter, it helps keep these conversations going. So thank you all so much. Um, 
please, uh, uh, both everyone here has mentioned, I think, some of the things they do. Uh, I know especially Jessica and Becky are both on podcasts of their own that are fantastic, and I would definitely advise um, you checking out. Uh, if nothing else, because if you go follow them and tell them how good they are, it's going to encourage them to create more content, which I really want them to do. <laughs> so for my own selfish reasons, please poke them to do that. Um, uh, Matt Carroll, who hosted us today, uh, this is all part of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network, which is um, has great content on – if there's a geeky media that you want to learn more about, they probably have a podcast on it. We have things on Star Trek, Star Wars, Marvel, DC. We're now doing stuff on the new PandaVision about Umbrella Academy and the boys – uh, I'm really trying to convince them to do Shira at some point soon. Um, we have someone I know who wants to do something on the Disney universe. Um, check it out. Check out the great podcast. And if we don't have a podcast and what you love, let us know, and we'll see what we can do. So on behalf of everybody, thank you all so much. Have a great day. Before we end the stream, what's the name of y'all's podcast again? Becky and Jess? Or is it two separate podcasts? Two separate ones. Two separate. What do y'all do? Uh, my podcast is called Rachel and Becky Judge Things. Uh, my nice. sister Rachel and I watch uh, sort of whatever the internet is talking about, uh, and we decide whether or not the internet is right about it. Um, <laughs> the internet is often wrong. <laughs> like and it. mine is Flights and Tights. Uh, it's a Superman movie podcast, so we have now covered every feature film that Superman appears in, and we have kind of been staring down the barrel at uh, the TV shows, thinking, like, wow, that's a lot of Smallville. So a lot of Smallville. Was it 10 seasons? 10 seasons. But my co-host is basically a Smallville-ologist, so she's fully qualified to discuss. And I have yet to watch either Smallville or Lois and Clark, and that would probably be the push I need. So Lois and Clark, man. It's so good. It's so good. I will say this, though. Am I right that Superman appears in the Lego Batman movie? I yeah, seen I think so. Batman. Okay, so I but think yeah, I think, I think so. that's incorrect. I think then there is a bit of movie that you've not reviewed. Live action. <laughs> okay, live action. That, that's we the covered deal. the live action. Oh yeah, there's a lot of animated movies. Yeah, that's also yeah. true. That's yeah. also true. All right, well, thank you guys all so much, uh, Matt. Thanks for being a part of this. Um, uh, we'll uh, I'll send you. You know, in terms of the follow up and stuff, I'll send you that all uh, off offline. But I'd ask you all to now hit stop on your recording and save, uh, since we've had some technical problems. Wait, we were supposed to be recording? <laughs>